244th episode of Rank and Review. This is the voice of your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. And episode 244 is WTF DMC. What the fuck director masterclass. Regular guest Mr. Jason Dubray of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show is here to help me talk about six unusual films from highly highly celebrated directors so that's the meal that you are putting in your ears we've kind of done a similar episode to this in the past it's kind of a sequel episode but they're strange movies from celebrated directors so uh jason and i might go on a little bit so you got a bit of an epic <laughs> about to hit your ears but i think worth it uh interesting in some cases hard to track down titles that uh for cinephiles this one's for those hardcore cinephiles out there um please send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com that's r-a-n-k-n-r-e-v-i-e-w at gmail.com please check out the website at rankandreview.ca check out jason debray's show the shelf shedding movie show and uh let's get into this uh, just as usual, we will be getting into spoilers for the movies we're discussing, and you'll probably hear even more coarse language from me. Let's do it. What the fuck? Director Masterclass. Mr. Jason Dubray, he of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, returns to rank and review. And it's always uh, a gift to have you on the show, but I've been looking forward to this one because it's kind of a sequel episode. We've sort of been here before. We're doing a director masterclass episode, but it's also a what-the-fuck episode. <laughs> so these are films made by auteurs, very celebrated and respected filmmakers that depending on your, your day or depending on where you're coming from, may or may not melt your brain when you watch them, right? <laughs> and sometimes we expect this. I mean, David Lynch and Terry Gilliam, we, we, we come a little bruised out of a lot of those movies, you know, <laughs> mentally, and we expect and want that from them. But, but sometimes that's not what we're expecting. So uh, this is the start. Um, does a director's name alone enough to sell you on a movie? I think I know the answer to that. And uh, what drew you to this list? Yeah, uh, I think directors do. Uh, some actors as well. I will see something even if I'm <clears throat> worried about it. And sometimes I'm surprised to the positive and sometimes I'm disappointed. I I find that, you know, with the directors, well, 
most of the directors we're talking about are usually safe bets for me. Um, there were a lot, lot of um, a few first time watches on this this episode, so uh, it was that was kind of good. And and in one case, I didn't remember who the director was <laughs> until I started the film. I went all the way through the credits, and I was like, "Oh, I wonder if it's this person or this person." And then I saw the name come up, and like, "Oh, okay." That, that doesn't make any sense at all. So <laughs> this is going to be fun. Let's see what happens now. So, yeah, I, I think I'm very much like that. I mean, <clears throat> if I heard <clears throat> tomorrow that Martin Scorsese's next picture is going to be a 79-minute uh, fart comedy with Adam Sandler, I'm going to be there. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I will be wondering what had gone on with Martin Scorsese that he got to this point. But, um, but well, it, it could happen. Coppola made Jack. Right? Yes, that's true. That's a perfect example of Jack. <laughs> Every now and then you get like a major director who does something that just utterly is puzzling. Yes. But you still kind of want to look at it because why? Why that choice? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you want to work with Robin Williams and who wouldn't have? But it's still... Or he needed something to make money because he's self-financed <clears throat> most of his movies, right? So if he made something that was a guaranteed hit, like a broad Robin Williams mm-hmm. comedy, then he could finance his next arty farty whatever. I wonder if he had grandchildren at the time, too. He <laughs> might have wanted to make a movie for his grandchildren. Who knows? But anyway, you just, I like it. On one hand, you can say, yeah. okay, this is a director I like, and they're doing something a little bit outside of their comfort zone. They're not repeating themselves. Good for you. So I can say that. But on another hand, if you're choosing to do something that is decidedly out, like not yeah. your forte yeah you kind of put yourself up set yourself up it's for a risk fall. but i mean <laughs> i i also respect people who take risks and uh, i don't know maybe that age of the auteur is dying where you get to make enough movies where you can look back and see your follies yeah. like if we got steven spielberg and tied him to a chair and asked him for an unvarnished opinion of 1941 like mm-hmm. would he be would he be able to speak <clears throat> real about it yeah, um, and there's also the force for the trees. Something like if you're in the midst of making this movie and you're really passionate about it, sometimes you're so lost in that vibe and that effort that you miss something really obvious. And I've been there, so I'm sympathetic to, to <clears throat> that kind of artistic failure. But call it what it is when it happens. And also, I want to, when we're talking about these movies, to recognize where they are in the shape of their career. Yes. Phantom of the Paradise is one of De Palma's first movies. Yeah. And I think I would judge it on a different scale if it was closer to the middle of the pack than it is closer to the beginning of the pack. And in some cases, especially when I'm trying to work defense for these mad movies, I might say, yeah, it's the first swing. <laughs> and, and, and Soderbergh, I think this was a follow-up to Sex Lives. That's right. Coffee videotape. Was, uh, a movie. Sex Lies and Videotape, not That's Sex right. Lives and Videotape. Yeah. I'm thinking of a... But it was weird because life. Sex Lies, we'll talk about when we do the review, Sex Lies conquered the indie world. It did. And it, everybody wanted to be in business with Steven Soderbergh. He didn't win Best Picture, but he was basically in the same position as someone who had. <clears throat> you can make any movie yes. you want. And he chose Kafka. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, yeah. yeah, like most of the people that we're going to talk about in this list... I am fan of, like, on board. Actually, I'm going to say, with the exception of one name on this list, uh, I would go to see a movie on the strength of their name being on I, I think we, we would have the same name that we would omit. Okay, so we're talking about Dario Argento? Yes, we are, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
but I, I'm not going to you know, disrespect Dario Argento and say that he's not an auteur. He's an incredibly respected international filmmaker. He's made over 20 films. Like, I, I, I will include him on this list, whether or not... I, oh, oh, he is. <laughs> like, he is, and he's become bigger in the last five, ten years because it's this younger group of horror fans have discovered... discovered. Yeah. Um, his, his films are... Going back to why I picked this list. Okay. Because you might wonder, because you, you kind of, I think, got the vibe that I was a bit negative about my... <laughs> probably the most for a while with, with, with where, where I'm sitting uh, with this episode. So I apologize ahead of time. Um, this reminds me, I just listened to your episode on, on horror remakes. Okay. And I forget her name, your guest. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of funny in a way because she picked... Uh, based on the remake of The Fog. She wanted which, to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I heard completely what you two had to say about it. Um, I picked it because I have never been able to watch Tideland, which also has a very personal connection as far as being filmed right here in Saskatchewan. And it has Jeff Bridges, who we've talked a lot about how much we both respect and love Jeff Bridges. People we know are extras in this yes. movie. And so... Um, you may find that I had a similar experience <laughs> okay. to the Fog remake, so I thought it's kind of an overlapping theme between those two episodes. But I never regret watching. Maybe there are some movies I regret watching, but not any of the six, even though I'm going to probably be more on the negative side with uh, four of the six, four I would say. Yeah, yeah. There's two, there's two I would give thumbs up to. Well, I think that I have a more positive reaction to the movies than you do, but... I would, even the ones that I would be, quote, positive about, completely sympathetic to somebody not getting this. Like, not any of these movies are for everyone. And that's sort of to their compliment to them and also against them. You know, again, you have to be in a position to make a position, uh, to make a movie like this and, and get away with it. The extravagant expenditure of talent and money on Mars Attacks is <laughs> kind of vulgar. <laughs> Right? Like, yeah. after a point, it becomes yeah. kind of... Embarrassment of riches. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you have Annette Benning and Jack Nicholson. You have a limitless bank account, you know, and, and like, uh, you can make the spectacle. And he definitely made it his, but it reminded of a line from uh, The Man on the Moon, the document, or the biopic mm -hmm. uh, on uh, uh, Andy... Oh my Kaufman. God. Andy Kaufman. Uh, you have to decide whether or not you are here to entertain yourself or entertain your audience. <laughs> and I think if you're spending millions of dollars and you're occupying some of the best actors' times in the world, you owe it to yourself to remember to entertain your audience. <laughs> <laughs> that might be important for most any movie, but yeah, I think in this case, yeah. I know there was some business that you wanted to attempt to beforehand. Yes. But uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about these movies before we No, not, not specifically. You know, I mean, yeah, I was really excited to, to dive into these these movies, too. And even if my reaction's negative, it's still... I And I I think we'll have a lot to talk about, which yeah. is good. One more thing before I list these off. Because we're talking about director master classes, and it's going to be a long episode anyway. I was at Value Village the other day and found a copy of Boxcar Bertha. <sighs> Martin Scorsese, yes. Barbara Hershey, like super cheap, 1972, just on the strength of Scorsese that I hadn't seen it. And I watched it. I really like it's it. It's good, yeah. I really like it. was a Roger Corman it. type of thing. The risk right? of yeah. sounding like a heterosexual male. Barbara Hershey, 1972. 
<laughs> I apologize. I apologize. Anyway, I, I just uh, again sometimes having loyalty to directors does pay off. Yeah. It does. It so, does. These six what the fuck director masterclass movies that we are going to discuss from Italian director Dario Argento. We have the Phantom of the Opera from much discussed with Dave, Jason, and I, David Lynch. The movie that introduced him to the world, Eraserhead. From Terry Gilliam, we have the deservedly controversial Tideland. From Steven Soderbergh, we have Kafka. Uh, Steven Soderbergh and uh, Jeremy Irons were as hot as they could be at the time this movie came yeah. out. From <laughs> Tim Burton, we have Mars Attacks, his blank check movie from the mid-90s. And we'll finish it off with Brian De Palma, another Phantom adaptation, this time the Phantom of the Paradise. Jason, thanks for being here, brother. Come to me. He's on the prowl again. Up here in the opera house. They say he loves the underworld. But phantoms don't exist. Saw him. He was listening to Mademoiselle Christine. Your voice fills my heart with divine light. Sing for me. been on the record as saying I am not the biggest Dario Argento fan. He's got, I think, 20 movies, maybe 21 now. I think there's like a brand spanking new movie out. Anyway, yes, yeah. I've seen a little over half of them, and I have not exactly been chomping at the bit to explore deeper in the catalog. He, unlike other, you know, directors, if I saw one of his movies super, super cheap, I might grab it, but it wouldn't be like an instant oh, Boscar Bertha? Zing! Mine! Right? Like, <laughs> I, I I want to be the Stario Argento fan because I see people waxing on about how amazing he is online. Part of it, I will say, is the Italian film aesthetic. This is shared by Lamberto Bava and a lot yeah. of the popular directors. They don't shoot with sound. They almost never shoot with sound. All of the dialogue, all of the sound effects, all of the ambient sound is added later. And... I'm going to say most of the time it sounds artificial to me. Like it just, especially the earlier you get, the 60s and 70s and 80s, they're super, in the 90s, you'd think to the aughts, they'd start to get better at it. But it's always got this artificial layer of paint on it that you have to get over to get to. But usually with Dario Argento anyway, especially with Suspiria and Inferno and and Tenebra, some of the ones I'm reading, if nothing else, they are visually amazing. He will do a stock and slash exploitation scene as beautifully as you anyone can. People might ask, why are you taking all this time to spend all this visual splendor on some woman being slowly stabbed repeatedly in the heart? And maybe I don't I do have an answer and maybe I don't, but that does seem to be the appeal of Dario Argento and the whole giallo thing. 
Once we get into the late stage of the career, this is late 90s, Ozzy Argento has been working with him, even with some of his early screenplays. Demons 2, she showed up, and she's still mm -hmm. like a, a child actress, yeah. basically, in, in these movies. But she's all grown up here. She's playing the romantic lead in the movie, leading me to uncomfortable thing number two. Mm -hmm. Ozzy Argento is being directed by her father in a fairly lurid, heavily sexual scene. Like, it's gross. Like... I, I, I want to tell myself that there was a second unit director that handled those scenes, but I know in my heart that there wasn't. Should that take away from my enjoyment of the film? I don't know. Does it? Absolutely, mm -hmm. it does. <laughs> Over and above all of this, we're talking about The Phantom of the Opera. Jason, I don't know how familiar you are with Phantom of the Opera, but what would you argue is the signature image? When you close your eyes and you think Phantom of the Opera... What image pops into your head? I think a phantom with a half mask. A fucking yeah. mask. Yes. A disfigured, yes. tortured yes. artist yes. wearing a mask to cover the ugliness in his face. Which is all entirely fucking absent here. Julian Sands, rest in peace. Yes. I have talked shit about him in the past on the show and I felt a measure of guilt. I don't know, it seems like... Since he died, it seemed like it was disrespectful of me to, to talk to more about him as an actor. But I don't think he's particularly strong here. And the movie, I'm sorry, I don't, everyone seems to make excuses for Argento, is terrible. It is ridiculous, stupid, and terrible. And it doesn't gradually get there. From the first scene when a little baby is rescued from drowning in the sewers by a bunch of rats and clumsy... <laughs> Overdone narration explains that he was somehow raised in the sewers by rats to become this gorgeous, well-spoken, romantic figure. Fuck this movie, Jason. Fuck this movie. And fuck anybody making excuses for this movie because there's not a good scene anywhere. I can't even give like, yeah, there's a scene where the rat catchers have a really gruesome death under it. Doesn't have anything to do with anything. And I would love to tell you this is an aberration, that I picked this particular Argento movie out because it was one of his worst. I dare you to watch his Dracula. I dare you to watch Dario Argento's I've heard Dracula. It's bad. It is significantly worse than this. And this movie is appalling. I do not understand the respect that people have for Dario Argento. His two most celebrated works are Phenomena and Suspiria which I can defend on a sort of aesthetic beauty level, but I don't even know that they hold up as stories. I just don't get it. But I do get how in some of his artier, fartier works, you can work defense for it. In this particular case, this is a cat catastrophe. It, it's, it's awful. I'm embarrassed for Asia Argento. And as far as I'm concerned, this is pretty representative of his late career work. This is what Argento does from this point pretty much on in his career. So um, that's going to be a thumbs down review for me. Oh, is, okay. I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> okay, okay. I, was, I just wanted to make sure of that. Yeah, yeah. Just, okay. So we're clear. Yeah, no, I didn't like it. No. Well, <laughs> I, I told you four of the movies have a thumbs down, so I think you would be absolutely shocked if my thumb was up, which it is not. Okay. Huh. I don't... <laughs> think I despise it to the level that you do 
Um, but I went in with absolutely no expectations, hearing that this was a train wreck of a movie, which it is. It is it is absolutely that, a train wreck of a movie. And I, yeah, I was confused as to, was I watching uh, some sort of a uh, third version of Willard here when he's the whole rat thing, and he's kind of a, a rat master, and we see kind of this scene where I feel sort of bad for Julian Sands surrounded by all these rats and there's a suggestion that the rat uh, I think uh, gives him a, a blow job yeah the rats are all over his private area yeah uh, Asi Argento is in the next room by the way yeah he, he, and, and they just they just, they just had sex yeah. but he was so, I guess yeah. uh, finishing off in the next room with the rats mm-hmm. gross and but, not even like a horror movie ew that's disturbing gross just like ew <laughs> here, here, here's what I'll say yeah I'm completely puzzled as to why he's not scarred I don't know why that isn't anywhere in this um and, oh the, the climax is brutal oh it's just it's, the, 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 but okay nice things these are very superficial nice things but um Asia Argento at this time a very beautiful woman of course so that could get me through <laughs> I would never say that I, I, I you know I think I'd actually like take the sound off you've talked about this <laughs> and you play in the background at some crazy party or something like that and then maybe it would serve a purpose of some kind. Um, I think she's very beautiful. I think she's an okay actress. I think that she's hobbled when she's working in English. I think she's much mm-hmm. more comfortable yeah. working in her, her own language. Mm-hmm. But um, I still just think it's gross that she's being used this well, way in her dad's movie. Her first scene, I think she's standing downstage center in this opera house. And I don't think she has, I think she has a see-through dress. You can see her breasts clearly through the shirt. Yeah, and the the very first like this is the establishing scene for this character, not not the first scene in the movie, I guess, but her her feet first scene. In, like, why? <laughs> what? Really, really, and that the sex scene reminded me of like uh, the showcase uh, midnight. What was showcase review? What, what was like that? Red thing? Shoe Diaries type. Well, of stuff? yeah, they would have kind of a uh, like a sex type of movie. And they'd have Red Shoe Diaries, and like they'd have a lineup like that. It would be kind of weekends, um, when you know, when I was a teenager. These and so, and, and, so, and sometimes some of the movies would actually be kind of like interesting ones I discover later that had actually had a story to them. But right. but but other ones were just for pure exploitation. That's what it felt like to me. Like it felt very uh, uh, <clears throat> sort of B television show 90s. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know. Uh, and maybe, like, we're being all, you know, insecure and uh, tightly wound and we're not European enough. <laughs> but but the, I think it's gross that your dad directed yes. this scene. I understand Asia Argento grew up on horror sets. Like, she said that that smell of horror makeup, she associates <clears throat> it with her childhood. Yes. Right? And so violence and sexuality and stuff like that, maybe not as big a deal to, you know her and her family as it may be for us but still when you're doing the nuts and bolts you know sh- shooting like it's that, a graphic sex scene I mean it it, it's not it's not sort of like a and again I know as you wanted to be an actress she was probably lobbying to be in the movie right not I, sure I, I, like but maybe it shouldn't make me uncomfortable I'm saying for the record it makes me uncomfortable well it is it's, it's, it's weird it, it and yeah, it, it does completely take you out of the movie. Now, if you watch this and you don't know who any of these people are, right. and you don't know the name, 
that this is the daughter, then maybe you watch it and like, oh, okay, that was what that was. Well, then but but I still yourself. think it would be bad. Like even if you, you know, any of that stuff, you'd be like, this is a really bad version of the Phantom of the Opera. What I dir- the I directed a, a non musical version of Phantom of the Opera, right? And you know, the script I had wasn't actually a great script. I I did a couple things to kind of elevate the the horror element of it. But I would take that script and I would take my high school cast <laughs> every day and twice on Sunday over over this group. Like every, but he's bad. There's a really bizarre sequence where there's this old man who's a pedophile yes. who's giving candy and and this girl's running away. And then you find yourself cheering when the Phantom shows up to to oh. off this guy. Why is that in the movie? Well, again, they needed to find a reason for us to like Julian Sands, and I guess that was it. But, like, why does she but, like but then, Julian Sands? We understand why he likes her. She's pretty, yes, and yes. she sings with her mm. boobs showing, I guess. Well, <laughs> he, does, he doesn't like the 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 diva or yeah. the, you know, which is... And that is That's true. consistent in all of them, yeah. yeah. He doesn't like who's singing the work, but he's not writing the work. It's not personal no. to him. And, again, like... <laughs> I hate to get to this level of specificity. Like, <laughs> I remember making fun of uh, the Joel Schumacher Phantom when we reviewed it, saying that he spent all of the money he made on candles. Because <laughs> <laughs> the entire place was fun. But, like, I get distracted thinking about that kind of minutia. The movie's not working. Did the rats supply him with clothing? Did they teach him to speak English? Like, seriously. <laughs> what went on in the sewers? <laughs> That would be a more interesting movie. That would be such a more interesting oh, movie. The, the rats raising a cho- a boy into a man. That was that. I, I would I would watch that movie. But man, I was longing for Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera. Watching this, I mean, yeah, that, right? and it's a it is not a good movie. No, not a fan. No, no, I gave that one a thumbs down too. But I would watch that movie twice in a row. Yes, yes, I know, I know. Man, and again, I, I all I can do is be mean to it. Julian Sands. R.I.P. I'm terribly sorry that that happened to you. That was a miserable fate for anyone mm-hmm, to meet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, he's just not romantic or charming in the movie. Like, he, I don't understand him as a romantic lead. I guess if you took a still frame picture of Julian Sands and he would look like a guy on the cover of a romance novel, like maybe aesthetically he looks the part, but there is no reason for her to fall in love with him other than some kind of evil magic. And I kept thinking this was released about two years after leaving Las Vegas, and he felt kind of old at that time. He was that kind of pimp character, right? Yeah, it was and, a weird performance. And, in and Vegas so then, too. you know, and I, I thought he served his purpose in that at least, like it was a role, a secondary role that he yeah. could do well enough. But he, two two years later, suddenly he's he's supposed to look th- that much younger. It was a yeah, it's a it's a strange strange choice. I think um, actors have learned hard lessons from working with uh, Argento in the past. Mm-hmm. Like, at the time, you know, your free trip to Italy, that'd mm-hmm. be fun. Respected horror director. Apparently, Adrian Brody had to threaten to leave the set to get paid on Jallo. Oh, <laughs> like, okay. uh, the older we get into his career, the more rickety the things have well, seemed. Well, yeah, he's passed his best before, and this was, this was now, I mean... 25 years ago so and he's for, made several movies yeah, since this some has. of them worse yes I've heard that so honestly please somebody write me at rankandreview at gmail.com and fucking explain 
Dario Argento to oh. me. Well, I, I I like some of his other stuff. I'm Phenomena. I just saw for the first time last year. Mm-hmm. I ended up watching it uh, twice, I think, and I had a great time with that. Like I, is the monkey the murderer? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but, um, but I, th- there's there's something. You're not going to get great dialogue because it's translated in all these different languages, but there's something there. But I don't think that that charm is anywhere after after that point. I mean, those who are hardcore fans of his might be screaming about some movie after Phenomena that that was half half decent to watch, but I can't think of what that would be. Do you know Inferno? I haven't watched Inferno, yeah, no. It's the second of the Three Mothers trilogy. And, okay. Uh, so it's a sequel to Suspiria. And it's totally bizarre, dreamlike, art wankery to some level. I'm not super huge on it, but I could understand someone making a case for it. Yeah. I can't understand someone making a case for this. Movie. Well, have you heard anybody make a case for this? I mean, I, I, I think um, I've I heard more around, negative. On... I've seen a few people sort of giving it like... Uh, a pass on the basic sort of sex and violence mm-hmm. by the numbers, but not one of Dario's yeah. best efforts. But still, even by that, they're glossing over it. Yeah. Like, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'll mention one other scene that annoyed me, and then we can probably move on, I think. But, um, like, after the sex scene, like, he's so charming, and oh, yeah, we're, we're, we kind of like the guy, right? But after the sex scene, he turns and they have this really silly fight, which then then he suddenly turns into this abusive villain out of com- completely out of nowhere, and she is like a child. Like she, her reactions to thing, especially towards the end, last thing we hear is her just crying and screaming. But it sounds like a two year old having a tantrum, and she has this this temper tantrum type of thing in reaction to what's. And I kind of get, I get a reaction of like, what's wrong with you? What happened? Like now that you, you know, had the sex, now you're going to, you know, I, I like, maybe you'd have to be raised by, like, raised by the, rats. To I don't know. I guess so. Because <laughs> even within the scene, there's like three different scenes going on, three t- tonal shifts and none of them make any sense. No, but no. And throughout the movie, it almost feels like you could put the, the DVD on shuffle <laughs> And it would make as much yeah, sense. Yeah, yes. The scenes could be completely out of order. It doesn't matter. And, doesn't matter. like, again, we get to the climactic point of the movie. <laughs> the phantom is being shot, and he's going to fall into the water. And she's screaming, my love, my love. And I'm screaming, roll the credits. Roll the credits. And, and they're going to kill her, too, right? Because she had sex or something? Is that right? They were chasing after her. <laughs> Because there's some line like, oh, they're going to kill you. And, and then, like, the yeah. other guy, for reasons I don't understand, is helping her escape and, and rowing off with her, knowing full well everything that's gone on. And how does he feel being in that, that boat? And she's like, oh, I'll never love anybody else again. <laughs> yeah. like, again, they failed in making the villain of the piece the villain. He just no. seems like a guy caught between stuff outside of his control. Oh. And... Again, I, I, I want to end this review because yes, it's going yes. on for too long. But there's an unintentionally hilarious scene <laughs> where this guy runs out on stage and calls her the devil's whore in front of everybody in the <laughs> That's opera. Right. And man, if there were more scenes like that, like that were that unintentionally hilarious, <laughs> I might be recommending this. Uh, maybe the orgy scene would be one for you too. Yeah. yeah. Boo.
Okay, so funny story about Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My wife was pregnant with our first child, and uh, I believe I was working. There was some reason I was occupado, but she and another friend of ours were going to go check out a midnight screening of this movie, Eraserhead. (laughs) And uh, she'd never seen it before, so let's check that out. And I was like, ooh, you sure? Are you sure? And she's like, is it bad? I'm like, no, no, it's not bad. But I just, I don't know. Particularly because she was carrying a child at the time, and that this movie, for me anyway, because obviously it's up for interpretation, uh, <laughs> is very much I connected to the idea of sort of fear of parenting and, and uh, the inadequacy uh, that you feel to the job and uh, the fragility of this little package that has been delivered. <laughs> uh, obviously, an oversimplification because we're here talking about David Lynch. And there's no through line to that sort of beating heart of the movie. But what I will say about Eraserhead that I haven't said about a lot of David Lynch movies is that uh, I found it hypnotizing. It didn't overstay its welcome. And I think that the scenes did actually, you know, sound off an echo chamber of this theme of dark paranoia. Do I understand every corner of it? No. Like the lady in the radiator? I'm not sure what that represents, but it's creepy as shit. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think it does add something to the movie. Say what you will about Jack Nance. The man himself was apparently crazy. Uh, he, um, and an interesting supporting actor in, in movies, a lot of the time in David Lynch movies, mm-hmm. but just a strange guy. And his characterization of Eraserhead is indelible. It's, it's amazing to me, like, that uh, it, it connected with the audiences. I think it maybe only could have sprouted out of the 70s and that sort of, mm-hmm. like, experimental respect the artist to almost a, a ridiculous degree <laughs> uh, level. There's that famous story about Catch-22 where the uh, director of photography said the ideal time to shoot was between 1 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the entire movie was shot between 1 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Like, that's indulgent, right? (laughs) So (laughs) that's not necessarily where we were here, but like, um, I don't know that if he had the, unless you had the name of David Lynch, this package could be sold today. Yeah. Even. Yeah. uh, I remember when we had Book of Trespasses in the film circuit, I saw some of these short art films that honestly I found impenetrable. I would politely clap when it was over, but I was completely lost. And that has honestly been a weakness for me in, in a lot of the later David Lynch movies. Yes. Not to go back to our Inland Empire conversation, but that being one of the worst for me to to wrestle with. I wonder if Inland Empire was focused and 85 minutes long instead of unfocused and three hours long, if it might be something that I could get behind. Mm -hmm. Because as confused and perplexed and sort of hypnotized as I was by the movie, at the end of the day, I do think I like it. (laughs) I think I like it. And it's watching it again. This is probably my third or fourth pass for this podcast. Like, um, I'd seen it before, and so if I if I need to take a break while I'm watching a movie, especially if I've seen it before, I will allow myself to do that. But something happens when you press play on this movie. I find this is true of, like, some Kubrick movies, too. Yes. It just hypnotizes you, and you just take the ride. You don't fully understand the ride. Maybe you don't even always appreciate the ride, but you take it. Mm-hmm. And for that accomplishment, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. 
as we're going to go on to the review, if we want to try and break things down, I will give you my interpretation of it, but I will not argue that it is the <laughs> interpretation. Nobody it. knows what the interpretation is. So it's going to shock you that this is a thumbs up. Um, yeah, because I've been the Lynch defender. But this is what I'll say about Eraserhead, and I've only watched it twice. So you've watched Eraserhead more than I have. Eraserhead and Inland Empire, what they share for me is total confusion. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I've watched those movies, each of them more than once. And when I get to the end of it, I, I, I really really don't know like i i have all kinds of fun with wild at heart and mulholland drive and uh blue velvet and movies like that kind of coming up with what i think my interpretation is i i i really did cling on to that idea of i, I thought it was maybe a little bit broader than fear of parenthood um it might be like even fear of life or responsibility. A, or response fear of responsibility that's kind of what i thought this time, but then there's all the other stuff that's in there. I, I, I feel like this movie struck me as a, like a David Lynch student film. It's m- like one of the best student films you'll ever see because it is quite well put together. And I have the Criterion version of it, so it was nice to be able to crack that open and, and, and watch years. it. And it looks really good. It took years to produce, by the yeah. way. This was a long production. Yes, yes. And so... Um, so where I'm, I'm happy that you like it. I, I struggle with it being among my favorite of his though, as much as like on this list, it's going to rank quite high. Um, but I'm not sure that I, I like it a lot and I respect it, but I'm not sure that I love it in the way that I love some of the other David Lynch films. So it's, it's, it's kind of strange to me. My take on Jack Nance is he's doing a really great job of playing David Lynch. Right. Because he he has Lynch's voice down, he has Lynch's hair. Uh, he's playing David Lynch, and I think this is like they're all sort of about David Lynch somehow in some way. Um, and also, like I saw that documentary uh, Lynch Oz or Oz Lynch. I don't know if you've watched oh, that. Where everything the is the Wizard of Oz. Like right. the Wizard of Oz is in this, and it's in everything, especially it, in Wild at Heart. Yeah, well, it's so obvious in Wild at Heart, but there's a case made in oh, his entire. Filmography and and in the Twin Peaks series as well. Um, I'm not sure if I'm completely sold on that. It's like the documentary about uh, The Shining, right. where there's a lot of conspiracy theories that are kind of thrown in there. Room two three seven worth your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, and I think Oz Lynch is worth your time if you're a fan of David Lynch. Um, but I, yeah, I, I still kind of struggle a little bit with this one. But I would say, like, maybe... I don't know what was going on with him at the time. If Did he have a kid or... Jennifer Lynch was brand new when the project started. And she was probably four or five by the time it was finished and out in the world. So the writing of it might be about her as a baby. The timing works mm -hmm. out well for it. But again, I don't know if that's me putting it on there or not. If I was Jennifer Lynch, I might take that a little personally. Well, like this little alien thing. Gross... Well, here's a personal story to my life. A real, genuine, ridiculous fear I had when both of my boys were a baby, but especially Owen, my first boy, was that I was going to drop him. Mm -hmm. 
that he was going to somehow squirt out of my arms and drop him in like the most ridiculous way, like yeah. uh, off of the second floor of the mall or something. He was yeah. going to somehow jump from my arms. Mm-hmm. This would never happen. It would. I would never allow it to happen. It would never happen. But it was something that I thought about happening all of the time. And your kid's not going to develop boils on its face and start like wailing like a sick dog. Mm-hmm. But what if they did? How helpless are you to do anything about it? And for some reason, it's all about him. There's that really awful dinner sequence where oh, he yeah. goes to the, his girlfriend's wife's house or whatever. And uh, the level of animosity that is being thrown towards him just mm-hmm. for existence. Like, this is your fault this happened. You better own up to it, yeah. God damn it! And like... <laughs> She's not necessarily getting oh you're you're the the kid gloves you're you're, you're precious and pregnant and blah, 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 but he is the villain of the piece yeah. somehow. You had sexual relations. That's right, and, and he feels and no. like this is right. He is the villain, mm-hmm. and that somehow that this burdenous child, which I'm sorry is how it's portrayed, mm-hmm. uh, is somehow like this curse that he has to to do. The 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 woman sort of vanishes from the picture pretty quickly, and it's all about him dealing with this child and him kind of going insane the whole world was insane to begin with yeah um and the one reprieve he seems to have is the lady in the radiator <laughs> which again i am i'm at or, a loss or the fantasy about the neighbor across the that's way right. like that's right. really kind of attractive but she everything's think, better in the room next door yeah and i think that might be a bit of a comment on you know and then i guess they get married you know like in in this they get married right but he's like looking at the possibility of another woman because he has all these responsibilities and that becomes the fantasy uh you know but that kind of blows up in his face i guess i want to go back to this image because he he sometimes will have these repeated images you'll see it one thing early in the film and then it has takes on a different meaning later there's that bizarre stuff of that dinner with that mini chicken it bleeds and then it bleeds out and it's this really off-putting gross scene and then later in the film in a completely different context we get that big gush of blood coming out um isn't it like the doesn't the baby grow or I'm trying to remember um there's some sort of birth imagery out of the chicken yeah but it was but it wasn't a chicken anymore and right. yeah i probably have it written down in my notes somewhere but i <laughs> Yeah, so it's that kind of stuff that I think you know. It's, it's funny that I, you know this is one that you're liking, and I'm 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 taking the opposite sense. That's the kind of stuff that I think really drives those who don't like Lynch drives them nuts. Is you know it has a purpose. Like he intentionally did this for some reason, but it, and again, it's all guessing. But maybe this is the whole thing is like a psychologically, his mind is completely warped. And they they had a normal dinner, and they had a normal chicken, and the uh, father-in-law didn't look like a nut just staring with that goofy smile on his face through yeah. the entire thing. But that's just his interpretation. His interpretation. But then, like, later on, that this, this little thing then suddenly explodes and becomes a bigger catastrophe for him. But he's also an eraser. Yes. Right? Yeah. He's eventually turned in. He's turned into an eraser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, again, I don't know what that kind of bow that puts on things. Is that like your 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 life just <laughs> doesn't matter? It's just 
in the end, you just become like these little little bits of eraser dust flying through the air. Yeah, and that's all that is left of you. Again, I don't know. And honestly, like, the thing that I complain about in Lynch, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say isn't present in Eraserhead. It's absolutely present in Eraserhead. It's shorter, though. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I I honestly do think that helps. Mm -hmm. 85 minutes as opposed to 160 minutes Mm -hmm. goes a long way. I mean, maybe. But his like, other movies were normal. I I completely agree. Inland Empire is way too long, but his, some of his other movies are in the two hour range, and but you don't like them either. Had strong reactions to it, like mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> Max. Sorry, not Max Brooks. Um, Mel Mel Brooks uh, saw the movie and Idento. He connected to it. He saw the sort of parental angle on it as well, and wanted to produce his next movie. Terrence Malick infamous famous <laughs> weirdo director i think he and david lynch should maybe just get married on some level <laughs> yeah they, 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 <laughs> but they, they're in the same he was excited about this movie and he was showing it to producers trying to get people in the business of david lynch and they would walk out of the screenings before it was even done saying this is bullshit and i'm not unsympathetic like if you do not connect with this it feels like art wankery but the tangible thing is, like, when I feel like there's something there, mm-hmm. isn't there? And uh, in a lot of the earlier works, particularly uh, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, and this one, mm-hmm. uh, I really felt like there was something there. But the deeper we get into the works, the more I start to doubt that there's something there anymore. This felt like a more solvable movie for you yeah. than Inland. I know Mulholland Drive would be a conversation for another day right. or... or yeah, Lost Highway, ones like that, but yeah. Yeah, again, uh, they, they become obtuse to me, especially once we get into Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive, where he won't even commit to character. It, like, at least we're with Eraserhead through this whole fucking movie. <laughs> you know, he doesn't just decide to, to supplant, and, and then he turned well, into a completely different He didn't person. jump into a different dimension, I guess, yeah. like like the characters in the other ones, yeah. yeah. But Or go over to Oz, or whatever you want to call it. I am, as much as I've talked shit about Lynch in the past, yeah. if you want to get into Lynch, and I do think his influence, if nothing else, has been a positive thing on Hollywood, whether or not you like his movies, I would say definitely check out David Lynch. Do it in order. Start here mm-hmm. and work your way up through yeah. his catalog. And don't skip Dune. <laughs> don't skip Dune. And, and Elephant Man. No. Just, Elephant Man's a very focused film. Yeah. I mean, Each one of yeah. these movies, like, uh, uh, they... He is a legit filmmaker. That's yes. why he's included on yes. this list. Yes. And he is a frustrating filmmaker to me, but that doesn't mean he's not legit. And I'm going to be watching Eraserhead again. I yeah. am, I'm still a David Lynch fan, yeah. but I'm sounding a lot more negative than I, I mean to, but it's just I I just don't connect to this one as much as the other ones. The good and the bad are present right out the gate. Just in this case, I think more good than that. Yep. What are you doing? I think she could be my new friend. Giovanna means their little stone house. It was such a wonderful time. Still on vacation, Dad. I got a secret. What is it? In the end of the world. Dynamite! It's not just a dream. This is where you belong. It's the edge of the world. 
podcast is people will regularly ask me really really difficult questions like what's your favorite movie and who your favorite filmmaker <laughs> I usually troll people with the favorite movie by saying tremors <clears throat> <laughs> and my default for famous fil- favorite filmmakers will be the Coen brothers mm-hmm. but in the conversation for me has always been Terry Gilliam Monty Python and the Holy Grail is one of the rarest movies in the world to me because it is a truly timeless piece of comedy. I feel like most comedy ages poorly, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail will never not be funny to me. <laughs> and uh, that was one of his first movies. Yeah. And even as a little kid, like I clocked that, and, and like so, like I put a, a flag in the ground. And then there were two other big movies for me with with Gilliam. One might surprise you. We talked about it on the podcast before. Is The Fisher King. Mm. That is one of those movies that shouldn't work for me, but that works so much for me, (laughs) like, that I just, I can't not absolutely get behind that movie. And his accomplishment, I think, of the adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. (laughs) It may have been a box office and critical bomb, but... I'm going to make the argument that it's an amazing fucking movie. Oh, I love that movie, yes. <laughs> um, and I, because of the, like those movies and others, I, I have a huge Gilliam fan. I am a Gilliam apologist. Um, but I would never say that the dude wasn't a little bit or maybe even a lot crazy. There was an episode of uh, Rick and Morty going all over the place where Rick was saying that on some levels... Uh, creative artistry is maybe closer to mental illness than it is to mm-hmm. any other sort of specific school skill set in our, our wheelbox. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it sure felt like it was true. It sounds true hearing it. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think that's true of Terry Gilliam. Like, he lost uh, the relationship with most of the pythons during uh, The Meaning of Life because he got so carried away doing his own sequence of the movie. It became the prologue of the movie. He spent like a third of the film's budget on this one joke short film <laughs> that opens the movie. And his excuse was, well, no one told me to stop. But, dude, come on. <laughs> like, be a team player. I don't know how to begin in Tideland. Like, he was halfway through production of The Brothers Grimm, which is arguably one of his worst films. He was having. Uh, he was in the editing booth with the Weinstein brothers, and they were fucking his film mercilessly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he <clears throat> basically wanted to shake off that stink of Hollywood and do something distinctly Gilliam and creative to like get that whole experience off of him. And I really do believe he read this book, and I really do believe that he sincerely connected to this little girl and seeing the world through the eyes of a child. He's done this before in Time Bandits to great success. But I'm going to argue the movie was so dark and so much about abuse and so ugly that it almost needed to be an animated film. I start to wonder how one can make a movie about child abuse without 
participating in the act of child abuse. Mm. Sarah Polly, I know I'm all over the place and I'm apologizing in advance. Sarah Polly worked with Terry Gilliam when she was very young on The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Mm-hmm. And when she heard he was making this film, she was like, who are you going to get to play this little girl? And please, someone look after her. And my knee-jerk response to that was to be defensive of Terry Gilliam because I love Terry Gilliam. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big respecter of Sarah Polly. But there's not been a production she's been on where she hasn't bitched about someone, it seems like. Right yeah. back to Road to Avonlea to go to, like, any movie she's been in. It's always been, you know, an imposition to her in some ways. So, like, I tried to measure it. But I gotta say, watching this movie Tideland about this girl suffering indignity and abuse after indignity and abuse with a big smile on her face was a hard thing to reconcile with me. It was a difficult sit, and it was made more difficult because at the beginning of the movie, I somehow forgot this one before I watched it for this screening, Mm -hmm. Gilliam himself had a little two-minute introduction before the movie started, basically trying to justify is that you're going to watch this movie, and some of you are going to hate this movie, and some of you are going to love this movie, but it is all seen through the eyes of a child. And if I believed it was all seen through the eyes of the little child in the movie, I might be celebrating it. But the child eyes that he's referring to are Terry Gilliam. Mm-hmm. Going to the actual story, it's based off of a novel, and it's sort of about how um, people who turn sour and mad go even more mad and more sour in isolated places. It was shot outside of Regina in Saskatchewan, very close to where we are sitting right now. And this kind of story can and does take place. Like, this horrible sort of poverty mixed with mental illness, tragic, they, things like this do play out. Are they entertainment? <laughs> and, like, what value do we get from it? If I felt at the end of Tideland like it said something to me or that, like, I, I knew what it was about other than this little girl suffering, it would go such a long way to me being able to embrace the movie more than I do. I do think it has those Terry Gilliam flourishes of madness. I do think that it is, at times, visually beautiful. And uh, Brendan Fletcher, a Canadian actor who is usually in terrible movies, got an opportunity to work with Terry Gilliam. And I think it's a really difficult role that he's being asked Mm -hmm, to play. mm -hmm. And I think he's incredibly to the task of that part but did I get any joy or learn anything what did I take away from the experience of Tideland and after watching it thrice now I still can't answer the question and before I hand it over to you I want to say this is maybe the only movie I have ever seen that made Jeff Bridges corrosively unlikable (laughs) like Mm -hmm. This is one of the most likable people, not just actors, like people. If you see him interviewed, he just seems like a cool dude. He played the dude, right? And I fucking hated him in this movie. I mean, we're not supposed to like him, but my God. Scene after scene of this little girl, you know, we open with her prepping the drug, boiling the spoon and prepping the needle for her her surrogate father and her being repeatedly slapped in the face by her mom for trying to steal candy bars (laughs) because you know the little girl's not being fed (laughs) like Mm -hmm. 
This is where we start. I do not like Tideland, so I'm trying to respect it. But I'm not sure if I'm there yet. <laughs> I still love Terry Gilliam, and I do believe, as twisted as this movie was, his heart was in the right place. But I did not enjoy the experience. Yeah, there, you have a lot of stuff floating out there. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of it I want to respond to. Now here's my all over the place. I would say there, there was a movie that was very successful about, from a child's point of view, who is a child who is experiencing abuse. Uh, so it just needs to talk to Guillermo del Toro and take a look at Pan's Labyrinth. Right. Because I kept thinking about Pan's Labyrinth. And early on, I thought, well, maybe this will be kind of like that in broad daylight. Um, but no, it, it, is, it is not that. The fantasy of Pan's Labyrinth takes it into the fairy tale realm. But there's we fantasy never, in this, too. Like, it doesn't she's, feel fairy tale. It feels it's like sad a sad fantasy, but it's her her dolls talking to her and all those different voices. Like, she lives in a fantasy world a lot of the time, too. As a coping mechanism for the abuse and neglect that she suffered. And to the point where she's convinced herself that her father is, alive. you know, spoilers, is, is alive in this early on. Um, he is not. Now, here's my next kind of all over the place. We we both know Angela Christie. Yeah. And she told me a story about being on the set of of this. And it's the very first scene, I think, that we see. I didn't, in my version, have Terry Gilliam apologizing for his movie or whatever <laughs> this was, which might have uh, gone was, straight into it even... It was the concert so that we the past people yeah, that we know. Yeah, this concert uh, scene. And, and so... She, she said, I've I've always disliked Jeff Bridges. I said, Jeff Bridges? Why? Well, because I was on the movie that he made here in Saskatchewan. And um, as soon as he, he got on the stage and he said, Hey, hey girls, show me your tits or something like that. Now, yeah, yeah, that's not a great first impression, but that was this guy I think now I don't know why there's a concert in here because there's they make no mention of him being a rock star outside of that scene but I guess he goes must have had that in there somewhere but it's you know it feels like a, an unnecessary scene he was a musician but, junkie <clears throat> in the novel that would be so actually a musician junkie in the movie right that might be the the ni- nicest thing he does in the movie because once we get into the rest of the story he's, he's absolutely horrible I and Jennifer Tilly's in this. Yep. And, uh, Till, um, no, um, what's her name? Uh, uh Janet McTeer as well. Um, some accomplished Academy Award nominated actors. Jennifer Tilly, I think, was maybe this was between Chucky movies or something, and she was still <laughs> kind of playing like the, an even darker version of that character, but she's, She's absolutely horrible. Like we we start off kind of liking Bridges a little bit more because she's so so bad, but then like he's he he is just absolutely awful. I, I mean he's doing his job that you don't like him. I really do think though when his character dies and then I don't know how they did it. They kept him hanging around for most of it and then all that bizarre makeup and all the twisted things that happened to his. He's just sitting his in his body chair, slowly. Yeah, rotting. Yeah, and she keeps wait, waiting for him to. Wait, to come out of his uh, trip, trip, yeah, um, and like there's a real level of disturbing, you know, it's just very disturbing. But what I was more disturbed about is I don't get Jeff Bridges for the rest of the movie, 
I now have this poor girl, and I'm not going to blame her. I think she she's good enough. She's in the Silent Hill film, I think. Jodel Freeland, and yeah. she's still she, working today. And... She has to carry this. Like Terry Gilliam did no favor to her. Like she's wandering around. She's doing different character voices with her dolls. She's narrating. She's talking to herself. She's getting into these adventures. She's having really creepy kind of. I mean, I get the idea that that. Um, the actor you mentioned Brendan there, Fletcher, yeah, Dickens. yeah, he that he is the mind of a child, right? But, but their romance so is very gross. icky. I mean, we were just talking about a father directing his daughter in it's sex so scenes. Gross. That was the other one where I was just like, I, I am just really bothered. I by, believe by this. in the intention of Gillian, and I don't think Brendan Fletcher is a creepy dude. And like, they have no. child like safety people on set, yes. like. I don't think she was being abused. No. But I don't know how you but, do that scene the, where they make out where it's not fucking gross. But did it have to be in there? I, I, maybe it had to be in there. I don't know. Like, they, 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 they're playing with that idea that they're kind of in love with each other and then they're going to battle... The shark. Yes. Yeah. Which they, is the train yeah. that goes by. There's this upended uh, vehicle that the, or bus that they, they play in. And it's a playhouse and it is innocent. Even yes. when they kiss each yes, other, it, it is, is innocent. It is. But it is still gross. And yeah. I have to like separate myself to like from the story, in the context of the story, it's innocent. On set, when you have a 20 something year old actor mm-hmm. kissing a 13 year old girl like that, mm-hmm. I, Yeah. I mean, I'm sure everybody was professional, and I mean, he he played his role. I and mean, he I he did the job that was asked of I him. So I don't fault him. He did the job, but Terry, Terry Gilliam, Gilliam is the one who set him up for this. Exactly. I mean, and Terry Gilliam is who I have to <clears throat> kind of hold the feet to the fire. Yes, in my he really connected that like she is invincible because of her imagination, and he connected to that. I think on a huge level, and going with all the shit he was dealing with with the Brothers Grimm. I think he just finally felt like to have something that was his gave him this real creative push, and he got lost in the trees. Like, it felt like a blank check movie. Like, we're going to be talking about a blank check movie in a minute. It, yeah. felt, it felt like that type of thing, but it was just so independent and, you know, probably so financed. maybe but. only for Terry Gilliam. I have heard other people defend his work. And, again, it's hard for me to completely dismiss Tideland because I do think there's some great acting in it. There's some great cinematography in it, yeah, but looks, it is looks okay, yes. so wall-to-wall unpleasant and unrewarding because it doesn't leave you in a place of relief or change or, like, things are going to get better for this little girl. Like, it, it just makes you feel miserable for two hours and then stops. But it drags on and on and on. And, and, and so it would be like if you did a documentary on, on children's play, right? Mm-hmm. But instead of doing any cuts at all, you just keep the camera on the children for a solid hour while they go and play and they're in their worlds and whatever. Um, And it just doesn't feel like I didn't feel connected to it. I didn't care after a while. I just wanted it to be done. And and it really was probably pretty early on in the film that that happened because it was maybe 20 20 minutes or so. Yeah. Right around the time that Jeff Bridges dies, yeah. I kind of and, and we haven't seen Janet McTeerian, and she's an actor I really I really like her. I, Albert Nobbs, I kind of thought she should have maybe even won an Academy Award for. I saw her on stage um, in uh, in London, and she's a fantastic actor. But 
I don't. First of all, I didn't know what she was doing. It must have been just again. She's British. Terry. Well, he's he's American, but he's in a lot of work in Britain. I, I don't know how they got her to be in this. I know why Bridges would have done it because they worked together on the Fisher King, yeah. and that you know I think one of the highlights of Bridges' career. Honestly, but, if Terry Gilliam calls, I'm picking up the phone. Yeah, <laughs> like even if but, it is for Tideland, right? But yeah, but McTeer, she can't carry the end of the film. No. Well, she disappears for sections of time. Like, she'll have kind of this colorful scene, and then she'll leave, and then more colorful scenes, and... But I was left at a... Like, if that was my first experience with her, I wouldn't think she would be... That she's much of an actor at all, which isn't true at all. So, I I, I just don't know what I'm left with here. I, it's, so, it's a real so- wrestling match. I mean, I, I, I have that respect for Terry Gilliam. I don't think I love him as much as you do. Mm-hmm. But I I do like Twelve Monkeys and Imaginarium with Doctor Parnassus. There's there's several really interesting. You never have a boring film from him, and that's where I'm shocked that two thirds of this movie, maybe three quarters of it, is boring. Again, I mean, boring is a tough one for me. I... Like I, it's a lazy criticism. I don't like that to use that term boring. But I was just like, this is drag, and I want this to end like. What's the point? Can we can we get on with this? Like, and feeling sorry point. for this poor the, girl trying to carry this, and she just at that time, it's not her fault, but she didn't have the acting chops to be able to carry this film. So, well, I think it was right around the time that uh, Jeff Bridges dies, which is quite early in the movie, yes. where you realize like all this is going to be about is this little girl suffering, and you keep waiting for that to change, and it doesn't. No. And that that's tough. It hits me kind of like one of these intensely personal director's things. And I do think, again, it's more about Terry Gilliam than it is about the book, than it is about the script, than it is about anything else. I think he, he needs to own, own that end yes. of it. But a lot of the time, the director's personal favorite movie is largely considered yes. their least favorite work. Uh, <clears throat> George Romero made this movie, Night Riders, which he alone loves. It's terrible right it's not a good movie uh but maybe for the time of his life when he was making it, it he met stephen king at that time and late and then it was right around the time he was gearing up to do creep show and things were going great for him and he had ed harris in the center of the movie and ed mm-hmm. harris ended up becoming this big famous actor and it was just this time of his life that he loved and i wouldn't take it away from him but that movie is terrible mm-hmm. i i am uncomfortable saying that tideland is terrible but I do not see the appeal of it. I don't get any entertainment out of it. I'm glad that Terry Gilliam was able to lick his wounds and feel more creatively himself because mm-hmm. of this movie. But I'm glad he got something out of it because I don't know of anyone else who did. I didn't. I, I, maybe <laughs> some of our friends get a paycheck. Oh. No, and uh, again, I really wish Hopefully. I could have been part of that too. But uh, I was working at the time, and there was carloads of people going down there, and I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And it, it sucks because, again, to be even uh, an extra in a Terry Gilliam movie would give me just a tiny little piece. To be in the room with Jeff Bridges. That's I mean, right. Yeah. 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 Now, I, was in, I was an extra in Blacklight, uh, a Canadian-made mm-hmm. movie yes. with uh, Michael Ironside that no one's heard of or seen. But oh, I, I remember. No, no. I remember when he was in town making that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway. Um, it's tough. Uh, even other Terry Gilliam movies that I don't fully get, like, say, The Zero Theorem, Mm-hmm. It's still, again, a very distinctly Terry Gilliam movie, and I see what he's going for, and I want to go back there and see if I can get closer to it. This is the one Terry Gilliam joint where I feel like I'm actively being pushed away from it. 
it is unmistakably Terry Gilliam. I will say that. No one else in the world would make this movie except for Terry Gilliam. That doesn't make it good, but it is a fact. It, it, it didn't even feel like a Terry Gilliam movie to me. Really? I, I, I had a different... I just felt like it was just a bad movie made by a bad director, and he's not a bad director. Yeah. Yeah, I... And, and maybe it's my fanboyness trying yeah. to make excuses, but... Um, I, I, I can't completely dismiss that's, it, but nor will I. And that's my struggle it. with the rank, because I like him so much. Yeah. I like him so much, but, you know, this is not going to be high. It's no. not going to be high on my list. It's tough. Gunnuck. Is that uh, your real name? Or why shouldn't it be? There are people watching. This has been open. Oh. Shall I reseal it? I understand you fancy yourself as a writer. You should find a more athletic hobby. Jeremy Irons is Kafka. To solve a mystery, he will enter a nightmare. Kafka, directed by Steven Soderbergh. The time has come, I think, for Jason Dubray and I to disagree strongly about Kafka. Because I think Kafka is one of my very favorite Steven Soderbergh films. <laughs> And I know, I know for a fact I'm in the minority about this. Lem Dobbs is the screenwriter. He did Dark, co-wrote Dark City and The Limey, another fan-fucking-tastic Steven Soderbergh movie. <laughs> and um, it's one of these cool literary things. Maybe it appeals to the English major in me, where it's not exactly an adaptation of a Kafka work. It is a Kafka-esque story starring a guy named Kafka, who we can, you know, make the jump is Kafka himself and the, the, this is going to be the inspiration for all of his work but it has also got more than a little bit of Coen Brothers in it if you ask me mm -hmm. there's this really weird arch uh, slapsticky layer of paint put over the grim dark mostly black and white experience that is this movie and the movie is sort of leading up to the moment where Kafka uh, the, the author uh, realizes that he is suffering uh, oh, what's the sickness that affects the lungs of the tuberculosis. tuberculosis thank you the one of the last things we see is him coughing into a, a napkin and seeing blood in it and that's sort of starting the clock of the last seven years of Kafka's life and it, don't, it also sort of feeds on how much you know about Kafka himself uh, for instance there's a, a famous point in the movie right before he goes into the third act where he asks a friend of his if he disappears and is never heard from again would you please go to my apartment and destroy all of my manuscripts? Now, that didn't happen in the way it is portrayed in the film, but before Kafka died of tuberculosis, he did ask his friend to do just that, mm -hmm. and his friend couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result, we have a lot more Kafka mm -hmm. stuff. Um, very few of his famous works were published while he was alive, but this whole idea he had of the paranoia 
and of like the system having cracks in it that are sort of weirdly obvious that everybody not only like walks by but seem to walk in <laughs> uh, is really interesting and the way that Lem Dobbs and Steven Soderbergh allow some humor into it so that it's not this completely nihilistic uh, evil thing because the basic story is a friend of Kafka's goes missing he goes to investigate it he finds out who did it they're going to get away with it all of the people that he meets to the left and right who he inadvertently exposes are killed including the quote-unquote romantic lead played by Teresa Russell yeah he then finds out he has a mortal illness and the credits roll <laughs> da, 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 da. yeah I was comp- I remember I was living on an apartment on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I walked down to the Broadway theater to see this, and Steven Soderbergh was hot off of Sex Lies and Videotape. But I was one of the guys who liked Sex Lies and Videotape, but I couldn't quite understand why it was like this earth-shaking like sea change and bringing people. I'm glad it was bringing people more attention to independent cinema. Yes. Absolutely, it was nothing but positive for movies. In fact, I think like. Those early 90s where they were discovering Linkletter and Soderbergh and even mm-hmm. Kevin Smith yeah. made the 90s as good as they yes. were. <clears throat> Kafka couldn't be more different than Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It is, like I said, the blank check movie that you only seem to get to make if you've already won your Oscar. Because the mystery isn't satisfactory solved. He doesn't get the girl. <laughs> and everything is backwards about the movie. Uh, it's dour. It's dark. And nobody wins. And I found it amusing and funny and spellbinding and unlike any movie I'd ever seen. I love Kafka. I really genuinely... Jeremy Irons was so red hot at this time. And I think this is one of his red hottest performances. It's right after his Oscar. Yeah. yeah. Like, he is so fucking good in this movie. And I think The Laughing Man is one of the great uncelebrated villains of cinema. I think he's terrifying I wish they'd done a little bit more with that character to be honest in the movie but oh, he gets a special credit in the in the end credits it is unlike any movie I've ever seen I saw it in 1992 or is it 91 91 I think it came out 91 it came out um, I hadn't seen anything like it and I haven't seen anything like it since then it stands out in Soderbergh's catalog as unique and it stands out as sort of interesting like there have been movies like this Cronenberg did Naked Lunch which is very much you know, William S. Burroughs starring in a William S. Burroughs story. I really like Naked Lunch. I think this is better. It's really unsung. People really expected a lot out of Kafka and they were mad that it didn't deliver. But I'm the guy who thinks it delivered. So, uh, thumbs up on Kafka. (laughs) So this was the one where I was watching the credits because I didn't remember who the director was. Right. And I was taking guesses and then it was Steven Soderbergh and I was like, Okay, if you look at his filmography, you'll see such a, like a plethora of genre and different types of stories and different approaches to films. I mean, we reviewed the one starring that porn star. Girlfriend uh, Experience. Girlfriend Experience, um, which, again, felt like a completely different movie from this than from Traffic, than from Aaron Brockovich, those two being in the same year, right. to, yeah, um... Ocean, the Oceans movies for crying out loud, which out are very sight, Hollywood, out of sight. Me, yeah, like. yeah, limey. I mean, <laughs> but you can start off making it sound like we're going to be in different places on oh, this one. And I, I, I have a very, you know, 
nice surprise for you. This is the other movie that's a thumbs up review oh, for me. It's I funny because I, I gave you Band of the Opera and Kafka, and then you sent back like this message that seemed all doom and gloom. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it was just the the collective experience. I was just kind of uh, okay I, of the six movies. So we're so, not necessarily so, disagreeing. No, we, we no no, and I I think I had just watched Phantom. Okay, and we've already made our point made on that one. No, this was one that I did not watch, and I'm surprised I didn't watch in the 90s, because I was trying to track down these early 90s movies, you know, because it was the time I really got into to cinema, and this felt very much like a Jason Dubray type of, you know, post-reversal of fortune type of film. But I think it was, I just had missed it. It was not at the time I was going to the Broadway theater to see art, art films and that kind of thing, and it's hard to find yeah, like you know really this is one i had to borrow i don't normally have to borrow movies because i make it a challenge to try to find uh the movies that you give me and but i two of them i couldn't find and this was one of them this is worth finding it, it is it is people need to check it out like i i don't i don't understand why they wouldn't maybe if they had an idea if they were wanting like a straight up biopic about kafka or they were wanting to watch a film of one well, kafka stories or something which you're sort of doing but Jeremy Irons, when he is focused and he's not playing like a full-out sleazy guy, like he is so good. He's, he is consistent. I mean, he's just, he, he, he chooses, or whoever chooses roles for him, sometimes they typecast him or put him into a certain category. He, he's he has so good in this. He and does. A lot of times when people have coldness, it sort of migrates into flat. And yeah. Jeremy Irons he's is not flat. never no. flat. <laughs> no, but he's, he's not comfortable... In the world he's in, and that like he, this experience says that oh I've now joined the world and I want to live, leading to the sad irony that he's not going to be able to live much longer because he has tuberculosis. I mean there's there is that kind of darkness in there, but terrific. Al, Al Guinness is in this film, one of his last movies. It, it probably would have been, and uh, and then like I was looking at the cast, oh that person, that person, um, Teresa Russell. I mean. She's one. There's some of her movies I've never been able to see that I, I would love. I would love to get a hold of. I always love seeing her in in movies. She, she, I guess it's not really a criticism. She doesn't have enough screen time because of what ultimately happens there. But I, I do like their back and forth and that you know kind of would be romance, but also the fact that she's very much leading this kind of this revolution and she, you know, doesn't seem too afraid of things i think it was a good role for her at a time i'm not sure she was getting great roles but right. yeah well it's interesting because as uh kafka is weaving through the uh, different suspects and the revolutionaries and all the different characters in the, in the in the story he's kind of inadvertently pulling these threads and exposing these yes people. he is yeah uh, he doesn't mean to do it but he causes a lot of collateral mm -hmm. damage as a result and there's a little bit, I don't want to overstate things, but there's a little bit of No Country to Old Men to this yes. movie. And that, like, it seems almost designed to not fulfill what you expect of it. In another movie, his best friend disappears. He end up finding a body, and Kafka gets to the bottom of the case, and evil is punished. Nothing like that happens. No, here. no, no. Uh, he gets to understand what was going on. He knows why his friends died and all these other people died. But that's as close to a win as he gets. What did you feel? Because I know a lot of people thought this was way too arty-farty, but I loved it. 
when he finally breaks into the mansion, the big palace on the edge of town, where all of the decisions are made and all of the Machiavellian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. plans are, are situated and directed down in town, it slowly migrates from black and white, yes. which we've been seeing in this really no- noir and beautiful passage, oh, yes. to full color as he's finally inside and able to see what's going on. <laughs> a lot of people thought that was a little ham-fisted, a sort of a, like a, a reverse-engineered Wizard of Oz sort of thing, but mm-hmm. like... I liked it. <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I love that choice. And, like, Soderbergh, too, and we would see this throughout even some of his prominent films about ten years after this one came out, would have this, where he had this way of having this really interesting photography, but make it still look like he's an independent filmmaker shooting his first film. So the black and white, it, it looks great, it's beautiful, but it's got this graininess to it, which is really kind of cool. That makes it seem like it's this isn't polished. This isn't Hollywood, and the black and white. It. I was into the story enough that when it leapt to that, I was like, oh, I had I, I was a little bit of a jolt and like, oh, the, you know, what a clever idea. I wasn't thinking, oh, this is, you know, he's so full of himself and and, and whatever indulgent, indulgent and and I didn't get that at all. I, I like that choice. And I like the reverse when, you know, he, every, all the stuff that happens there in color and then when we get out of it, then we're back to that and that there's something comforting about that getting back to that black and white. Yeah. Almost feel like you're a little bit more safe at that point. You're not really safe, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed that choice. I, yeah, if that's one of the big criti- you know, points where it gets uh, criticized, I... Yeah. I would disagree with that one. The colorful supporting players. Joel Gray plays this guy, Burgle, yes. who, who uh, is the administrator of the office. He's just one of these administrator guys who you just hate. But it's a really, really, really it's, good performance. Oh, he's good in it. Yeah, that, that was a perfect role for him. The, the two assistants that Kafka is assigned are these two, like, bubbling. Like, and that's hilarious. Like, that stuff is funny. That's Chaplin-esque yes, and yes. goofy. They seem like they fell out of the Hudsucker proxy. And yes. Somehow in- Hudsucker is what I, I was going to say. Like, it remind me of Hudsucker, yes. But I think the movie needed it. Because of the darkness, these little moments, which maybe seem like they're discordant, that certainly doesn't seem to show up a lot in Kafka's work that I have read. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a a scholar when it comes to (laughs) Kafka. I've read some of his short stories and that's all. But uh, I don't remember seeing that in there. But I was really grateful for for having it in the movie. But it has a great payoff. It does. It has a great payoff. I'm not sure I want to even spoil that for people, because not many people have seen it. But The other one I wanted to mention was The Laughing Man. I can't find it in here, but he got an and credit uh, in the cre- when they did the scroll as The Laughing Man. And he doesn't have any dialogue in the movie. He's one of these people, they've been doing experiments on people's brain. He's clearly been lobotomized and has been addicted to this substance. Yes. And they tell him, go kill that guy and you'll get your fix. And he's just this unrelenting screaming laughing (laughs) and chasing this guy and smashing through doors it opens on a chase between this guy and that and it's horrifying you just don't know where you are and i really respect that about the movie is that like it's disorienting in such a pleasing way fantastic makeup job too Mm -hmm. i mean i was just like yeah this looks independent very independent but 
Just when, the, the quality of that makeup is... You know that's what Kafka's up against. Yeah. What he's looking for is yeah. going to lead to whoever's... To this... this and, guy. like, that adds... Like, if people think the middle of the movie is too slow, I think that they didn't pay enough attention to that no. opening. Because, like, no. dude, <laughs> I'm worried for you. No, I just complained about how slow Tideland was. This is not slow. It moved at a good pace, an appropriate pace. It was great running time. I mean, it would be exactly right, I think, for people... I wanted to shout out two more actors. Mm-hmm. Armin Mueller-Stahl. I really love that guy. He's the cop. He, he, yeah, he kind of knows who, the corruption, but yeah, plays the game. He, he's always great at playing these characters. He delivers the subtext in a way where he knows everything, but he's kind of asking stuff. And then his reactions are, oh, oh that's the answer you're going to give me? Like, it's mm-hmm. all in the face. It, it doesn't matter which movie I see him in. Or just the, the pointed questions. They're saying suicide. What do you think? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's that's it. Like, that's... there's there's some quality there that uh, not not every actor has. Um, I wanted to get uh, Jerome Crab. Right. Yeah, he's a character actor, uh, famously in The Fugitive, and he he did a lot of. Um, he worked with Soderbergh again in King of the Hill. He's fantastic. That's right. He was in King of the Hill. I watched that once exactly a couple of years ago and. Yeah, um, I, that'd be a discussion for another day. I, I wasn't maybe in the mood for that one, but um, I, I really feel like I should like that movie more than I, I right. do. Um, but I think he's at points been typecast as a villain. Right. Um, and so when I saw him in there, I automatically thought he was going to be that, but then he wasn't. Like, he's the one with the, the scene you mentioned, go and destroy all my, my writing. Yeah. And like he is like a best friend here to Kafka and gets him out of so many situations and that's uh you know I, I i just like seeing that guy there's all these people in here that i really enjoyed seeing in an ensemble together headed by jeremy irons directed by like a young hungry but already kind of masterful filmmaker yeah what is there not to like about kafka just the fact that criterion or somebody hasn't grab this and, and made it more it's funny accessible. you say that there's been rumblings of Criterion doing a thing on Kafka and Soderbergh has this has been one of the ones that he's kind of wanted to go back to and tinker with mm-hmm. so it's not impossible mm-hmm. that we wouldn't see someday a director's cut the problem was that they spent a lot of money on the movie and it did not get a return and it wasn't even that well received critically which really yeah. puzzles me that people weren't lining up around the block to see Kafka I kind of get that but <laughs> That, that the critics didn't find it. It's sort of like, what was the one he did, the the, the good German? Yes, that's right. With the uh, yeah. black and white, full frame, done in the style of a director he liked, all based on the theory. What if they, that, that this director I love was allowed to include all the sex and violence he wanted to in his films? And yes, he got to do that little experiment, but nobody showed up for it, right? Yes. So... Uh, I again, he experiments, and I will be there for him. I will watch his bubble, and I will watch the girlfriend experience, even when they're less successful than I want them to be. But Kafka deserved to be celebrated in the way that Sex Lies and Videotape was, and it was not. But he did land on his feet. Let's be real. I mean, he had an incredible run in the '90s, and he's at the point in his career now where he can do whatever he wants. So enviable. I'm just looking. I and this might be a false memory I have. I feel like either Siskel or Ebert put it on their top ten list, but oh, okay. maybe I'm... Mostly it was dismissed. The other thing that I wanted to mention as maybe a, a, a something against it, I love Ian Holm, and when yeah. this movie had come out, Ian Holm was you know a known actor, but it was you know 
before the Lord of the Rings and before he'd had the level of exposure, especially on this side of the ocean, there was something about Ian Holm. Yeah. The second he showed up in the film, you're the bad guy. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, he's really friendly to Kafka and he's going to show him the way through. And I, I never trusted him for a But second. we saw him before. Like, there's a shot of him... Talking to the henchman dude. B- b- before before he gets into that situation where, yeah, you know this is not going to turn out well for Kafka, yeah. In which case, I don't know why they bothered with the subterfuge. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and that's not even really a complaint. Well, the audience knew. I don't think Kafka knew. That's I, right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see him in it too. But, yeah, it was, it wasn't a lot of him. I, I guess there's a, like a big climactic sequence and there is kind of what happens to him is kind of over the top some people say that the climax is maybe a little bit again it gets all color and it has sort of a more conventional teetering (laughs) gravity you know someone's gonna fall through some glass type of climax that's maybe more conventional but i don't i don't know there's nothing really conventional about this movie it it, it felt like a a kind of one of the fun coen brothers types of you know the the right amount of big i don't think there was a problem it was a false memory it wasn't Kafka wasn't on either of okay. the top ten lists, but I don't know. I, 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 it might have been on my top ten list if I had uh, been a full-on movie critic at the time it came out. Because yeah. I, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, maybe we're. I'm glad that if you felt you were the only one in the world who <laughs> liked this movie, that I can I can join in and give you a high five yeah. on this one. But because I yeah, I gave you the couple of movies that you couldn't get your hands to, and then you sent me a text saying I'm ready to record, but this is going to be a tough rank for all the wrong reasons. And yeah. I took that to me. <laughs> That you did not enjoy those two movies, and no, I just no, sent you. And there's other like, there's other movies we're talking about that I. I'm glad because there was a time where I really felt like I was the only guy no, who no. liked this movie. There's two of us at least, so I really liked yeah, it. Though. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would hate to have to be put in the position of ranking Soderbergh movies, but <laughs> it, it's up there for you. Huh? It would be up there. Yeah. As we must learn to dance. Girls, get out! To a new tune. Jack Nicholson. Whoa. Why can't we all just get along? Glenn Close. Kick the crap out of them. Pierce Brosnan. What, in your view, are some of the things that the Martians can teach us, Professor? Quite a lot about Mars, I expect, Natalie. That means I... Danny DeVito. You want to conquer the world? You're going to need lawyers, right? And Annette Benning. I think they've come to save us. From director Tim Burton. Hey, we all make mistakes, Mr. President. Mars attacks. Not anymore. We're going to take charge of this thing. let's talk about Tim Burton. Um, I have been a long-standing Tim Burton fan by sort of migrating into a Tim Burton apologist, sort of migrating into, okay, well, (laughs) remember when Tim Burton was considered a cutting edge, you know, like one to watch. And I guess you can't live in that place forever. Fair enough. We talked about how Kafka was Soderbergh's blank check movie, or his quote, Oscar, do whatever you want movie. Mars Attacks feels like this mm-hmm. for, for Tim Burton, just for the amount of money that was spent on it. He originally wanted to do it with stop motion, but uh, for the creatures and the yeah. effects, but that was deemed, quote, too expensive, 
so they went CGI, which ended up being significantly yes. more expensive at the time. Only a few years later, they could accomplish the same effects, millions of dollars cheaply. It's one of those movies that came out in sort of a, a funnel point of special effects, right? And uh, so some of the effects have aged better and some of them haven't. But the point is that this is all just supposed to be a lark. This is supposed to be like a throwback, cheesy sort of sci-fi movies of the 50s or, or even earlier where you can see the wires hanging off of the UFOs and uh, the aliens was a monkey with a box on its head or, or, you know. And obviously Tim Burton loves this aesthetic. He's a, gone to it again and again. And it's sort of this throwback dark nostalgia. And uh, I can I can be on board for it. And I think at 85 to 95 minutes, it would absolutely sustain itself. This is based off of a series of trading cards, okay? It's like <laughs> pictures of aliens destroying stuff that you'd collect and chew your piece of bubble gum. So uh, it doesn't pretend to be about anything about silly. And you can do that for 80 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that, uh, again, we've had this conversation before, and you say a good movie can't be too long, but I don't know. I think that if this movie was more disciplined and reined in, I could be much more behind it than I am. I'm not going to be like, complete, this is terrible and complete waste of time, but my God, half of Hollywood is in this movie. <laughs> and the amount of money that is being spent on this movie, and like the amount of people... It just feels like it should be a lot more substantial than it is, even though it's just a stupid Tim Burton alien invasion movie. It's just, all of these pieces were good enough, they didn't need to try that hard. And so they didn't. I, there's something a, a little bit resentful about, like, you are spending millions of dollars. You are using the time of Jack Nicholson and Glenn Close and... and uh, have, like I say, half of Hollywood. Pierce Mike, Brosnan. Michael J. Fox, Danny yeah. DeVito. Yeah. Again, Danny DeVito's a weird one, too. What the fuck does he do in this movie? Like, he is... Nothing. He completely cut him out of the movie. I love Danny DeVito. Cut him the fuck out of the movie. Why is Jack Nicholson playing two roles? Because there's too much downtime and Jack was bored and no one says no to Jack Nicholson? I think Dennis Hopper maybe wasn't available to play the role. I, I feel like that it was written for Dennis Hopper and he backed out or something. Also, lean into the bad. Lean into the bad. I think Annette Benning really gets this right because she's giving a really good bad performance. Mm -hmm. Like, her character is so cheesy and so unself-aware and pity I was too late. Like, she is calculatingly giving us a terrible performance in a way that I love it, but... Then you have, you know, Natalie Portman and Lucas Haas playing things pretty fucking straight. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work mm -hmm. at all. Um, the amount of death and destruction in the movie is kind of surface amusing, but it establishes right away that we can't care about anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. So when the movie is... It's only an hour and 46 minutes. For some reason, I thought it was closer to two hours. <laughs> it ends up... It's not a good... But it ends Sorry. up feeling too long to me. It really does. It just overstays mm -hmm. its welcome. I smile and nod. Yes, I see what you're doing here. Yes, I like how cheesy that line was. And, you know, you have the severed head of Pierce Brosnan slowly sliding over towards the severed head of Sarah Jessica Parker so they can have this loving kiss goodbye even though they just met earlier that day. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. 
this movie like is on bath salts and a lot of the times like I can really respect that but like this time I got worn out by the time that I was ready for the movie to be over before the movie was over I'm gonna give it a conditional pass just because of how crazy it is and there's no other movie like it but in a lot of ways I have actors who I like like Danny DeVito and Natalie Portman who come off as flat and pointless to me and that is never a good thing that said, when you they steal the ending of uh, <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, <laughs> and uh, they have this really high pitched yodely uh, song, country song, exploding the heads of the aliens. Sure, that was that was fun. I had fun with that. And sure, watching all of these famous people get you know disintegrated was fun for a while. But rain it in, you guys, rain it in, because you almost had something here. But in the end, I think you blew a bunch of money. <laughs> That's where I start on Mars Attacks. Well, I, I want to finish my quote with, a, you know, a, a good movie can never be too long. The other half of that is a bad movie can never be too short. Right. And there's an assumption that this is a good movie. Right. Now, um, at the time, I, I'm because I seem to be desperate to quote Siskel and Ebert in this episode, <laughs> Gene Siskel said to Roger Ebert, and, and Ebert, I think, got mad at him a little bit about this he said um tim burden is the guy who should be making movies about ed wood not making ed wood movies right and it was because of ed wood and it's it had some oscar success and i think you know critical success that i think he was allowed to do this plus all of like beetlejuice and all of you know batman returns batman. all of these yeah. <laughs> all of these films that had you know made a, a ton of money um I remember seeing this. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I rented it and giving it, like you were saying, a pass. Where I was like, okay, well, it works as a kind of a strange 50s B movie. Sure. Um, watching it to like to, to do a critique on it for your show, it's like, wow, this is a really bad movie <laughs> with super talented people. So this is like one of those ones where given the caliber of film filmmaker and the caliber of this cast this should be a no-brainer this but should be probably up to the top bad. but it but it's well some of them do some of them don't and yeah. i think maybe he was too busy to you know help out his younger cast members because those are the two he said yeah that are kind of playing it straight i don't know if they kind of feel like they're the heart of they're, the movie yeah or there's well the the end kind of suggests that or whatever that they're there to repopulate or I don't know what but that romance at the end feels so tacked on um, but they're they're almost like removed because they're seeing all the stupid things the adults are doing you know that 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 cause cause these problems I think Jack Nicholson is doing everything that he possibly can I don't completely fault him I don't like that secondary character the the Vegas yeah yeah that's but president of the, the United the, States. He does a good job with the president. He has sure. this really silly speech, and uh, it, it looks like they, they play like the the Oscar type of music. That scene kind of works well, and then of course it leads to like bad things afterwards. But uh, he knew exactly what he was doing in this movie. Yeah. I think to a certain extent, Glenn Close knew what she was doing. Um, but but both of from story to story, I, it's not you know. Honestly, Tim Burton. You you've got the budget. You got these people. 
hire unknowns, but then then you're sort of in a weird place because then you're asking unknown actors to give bad performances, and that's going to fuck with their career. Rod Steiger's in here now. Rod Steiger is a famous over actor. Yeah, Rod Steiger. You know, he's yeah. almost like the it's like the Pacino uh, hua thing. Yes, he he is almost kind of holding it back and sedate at places. Like he really could be even bigger to 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 go along with this, and he's the one who's you know. Not trusting the aliens and wanting to go to war. And parts of this at the beginning, or maybe two-thirds, they feel like a pro-war propaganda film. <laughs> like, it, I don't know that Tim Burton is kind of like... Pro, like He kind of takes the side of those who, oh, we should uh, not trust the aliens and try to kill them, as opposed to those who are trying to communicate and understand them and make peace with them, you know, like... Uh, but that's all part of the violence for laughs sort of mentality of this whole movie. One of the first thing we see is a herd of cattle running on fire. And yeah. it's a joke because it smells like barbecue. Yeah, I like that scene. <laughs> I, I mean, it wasn't subtle. What was the what was the name of the town? Um, Lockjaw, Kentucky is where it seems. Right. Like they have a place card saying Lockjaw, Kentucky. But then that scene's just kind of there. And then they go on to like the, the main story. I don't know. There's some really good people in here. I love uh, the... Pam Greer, Jim Brown story because awareness of like the, these great actors of black exploitation and they're and they're together. And Jim Brown, you know, I had forgotten what happened to his character. And there's this one moment you in there where, he's I, dead? where I think he's dead. And I'm like, oh no, this is one of the few people I like that's left in the movie. <laughs> But then we You're can't... not supposed to feel anything while you're watching the movie is the problem. They've already established by killing Michael J. Fox and Jack Black and all these people yeah. at the beginning of the movie yeah. that we don't care when people die. And then all of a sudden, now we're supposed to care when people die. Right? Christina Applegate's in this thing. She's playing um, like Jack Black's girlfriend, but then like he dies on TV I mean, for some reason. Then she goes and she's having sex with some other guy. I didn't or... even recognize that as well. No. Uh, um... Martin Short. I think Martin Short is very funny. He has a. Good he knows scene. what he's doing in this movie. I think there's a scene between he and Lisa Marie. Yes, <laughs> Lisa yes. Marie is this alien who is in disguise, <laughs> yes. and it's like the worst fucking disguise you've ever seen in your life. Like there is something so unearthly about her. But the this Martin Short character does not care. No, All no. he sees is he's, a hot. Chick. He's always picking up hookers. That's they right. they establish that early on. Yeah, and again yeah. he dies, and it's funny. We don't care that he dies. But that was like out of a horror movie. Like that, the like limbs or fingers are severed. Like it's yeah, and end up in a fish tank. Like all of that's really good. It just feels like it's from a completely different movie than the rest and of it. Then we go on to another scene that yeah. has nothing to do with yes. anything. I like the Pam Greer stuff too. I really love the scene where she stopped the bus to yank the yeah. kids. Yeah, I know she gets skin at her, and everybody on the sons. bus claps for her. Yeah. That by itself was a great little yes. scene. But again, the individual scenes that work, and that's it. Like, it's a thumbs down for me, right? But it's going to rank higher than it probably, probably would on any other list. <laughs> but it's just because of the, you know, compared to some, I don't despise this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of the movies that we're talking about that I despise. So. Yeah. But I do think, we, we talked about it earlier, you know, this might be falling under that thing, like, are you trying to entertain an audience, or are you trying to entertain yourself? And maybe you can make a movie to entertain yourself, but if you're going to tie up a third of Hollywood's, you know, top tier, and spend $250 million, try a little but, harder. But this should have worked. Yeah. This absolutely should have worked, and it, and it didn't. It didn't at the time, 
It came out the same year as Independence Day, yeah. which is arguably every bit as cheesy. It just allowed itself, you know, to be popcorn fun. And it wasn't winking. It was... Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I I understood why it failed. Um, but I again, it, I kept on for the longest time being kind of a little bit disappointed by Tim Burton, but cheering for him. Right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I I even I'm not as big on Edward Scissorhands as a lot of people, but I love how distinctly that was definitely only a movie that Tim Burton was going to make. Right? And again, this is certainly it definitely fits in what we're talking about here. Yeah. I don't see someone else other than Tim Burton making this movie. But he made it for himself, not for an audience. Here's what I'm hoping, between Wednesday and Beetlejuice 2, that he's going to kind of come back. But I mean, going in with very, very low expectations. early. Beetlejuice 2 is just a bad idea. It's been too too many years, but... Too long. But... Yeah. But but Wednesday worked. Again, I haven't seen Wednesday, so I won't... won't Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but it's very popular, so... I I did not like his Planet of the Apes, but I defended it on aesthetic levels, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, his Disney remakes were really kind of exhausting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I like Dumbo more than I liked Alice Through the Looking Glass, but these are some of his most successful films. And I feel like the most interesting stuff he did was kind of before he became Tim Burton. And yeah, that happens a lot. Why yeah. it's harder for me to get as excited about the next Tim Burton picture, even if it is Beetlejuice two, I genuinely believe he's kind of past his best performance. Mm. Um, I'm just cheering for it. That's I all. would be thrilled to yes. be wrong about this. Yeah, I would be thrilled to be wrong about this, but I kind of don't. You've been I right have. a lot more times than not. So. <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. B. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that do. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom. Phantom. Unlike uh, Dario Argento's take on Phantom of the Opera, I get the feeling like Brian De Palma and uh, Louise Rose, who are credited with the screenplay, might have actually read the source material (laughs) that they were adapting. (laughs) That always helps. Phantom of the Paradise is is an interesting monster, especially when you consider Brian De Palma's career. It's not that he hasn't done horror movies. Uh, Obviously, Carrie's a a very big one, and... uh, he has no problems with violence and sort of weird subject matters, but it doesn't feel exactly like a De Palma picture. And it's not one of his first movies, but it is, it's, one of, it's early in his career. But he wants to make a crowd pleaser. I'm not sure where this comes out in the context of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think. Before. It's a little bit before her. But it seems of that time of that meal is trying to do a similar meal. And in a weird way, even though 
all of the noises around the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It is the cult rock musical. This is a cult rock musical. Rocky Horror is the cult rock mm-hmm, musical. Mm-hmm. Um, as a sort of sitting at home watching it experience, in a weird way, I got more out of watching Phantom of the Paradise than I did out of Rocky Horror. <laughs> Rocky Horror is meant to be watched in a theater with an audience, with everybody playing along and shouting out the lines, and it becomes this crowd participation thing. And as a result, I don't think it stands on its own as well. There are people who are yelling squares at the at me right now for saying that, but uh, I like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I don't love it. Um, I think Phantom of the Paradise, because it's got a, a more clear-cut, familiar storyline to follow, and because, in a weird way, it's less a musical, we get songs, but they're not necessarily pushing plot, and we don't necessarily get full songs. We'll get excerpts of songs, and then we'll move on with more plot. Um, Paul Williams is the devil picture in the Faustian story that we have going on here. And the funny thing to me is that I always relate him to the Muppet movie. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> he wrote all of the mu- music for the original Muppet movie, and he was a guest on the original Muppet show. And, you know, so it's just interesting, the guy here like, moving right along, and uh, the Rainbow Connection also wrote all the songs for this. It's kind of amusing, and uh, I think speaks to his talent. As a musician and a songwriter. As an actor, well, maybe a little bit more rocky. But, again, with this type of movie that is as much about aesthetics and style, sometimes you can get away with that. The music is pretty strong. Um, Jessica Harper is the lead. She uh, would go on to star in Suspiria, coincidentally Mm -hmm, with the mm -hmm. Dario Argento. And uh, she definitely looks the part. But uh, they give her a little bit added edge in that she really wants to is driven to be a success and she's willing to make compromises to do that and she's not pure as the, the driven snow and our hero the actually disfigured actually wearing a mask phantom that we are treated to he loves her but she's flawed it's kind of interesting that she is as corrupted and corruptible as anyone else in the picture and they don't soften that for the love interest i just thought that was an interesting choice It's of a different time and place, and it definitely feels like an early 70s movie, and I guess I was a little bit at arm's length, just it felt a little bit like a historical artifact. So I'm not enthusiastic about it, but I actually enjoyed revisiting Phantom of the Paradise a lot more than I expected. I'm not a musical guy, and again, maybe it's just the contrast with having to weigh it against Dario's Phantom, (laughs) but... uh, I don't know. I think the story came along through. I think that there are things about the movie that are obviously very dated, which we can discuss as we dig deeper into the review. But as a, you know, Faust meets Phantom rock opera, it works enough for me. I will give it a conditional pass. Yeah, yeah here's my story as my introduction to it, because I didn't really know about it when I was teaching my years at Aiden Bowman. But... I would try to pick shows that nobody else would do into high school, and when it, especially when it came down to musicals, because I just get sick of the same shows being done all the time. Let's do Romeo and Juliet again. Yeah, well, Sound of Music, which and I did Sound of Music as it happened, but that was between kind of more uh, different or edgier shows or whatever. But uh, so I was talking to my my buddy Carl, who I taught with for many years. 
he said, you should do Phantom of the Paradise. And I didn't know what Phantom of the Paradise was. And then I looked it up and I, and I, I found the movie and then I watched it. I was like, yeah, I appreciate that this is completely different than anything else. But I was like, I can't do five seconds of this, <laughs> even with trying to push the limits. And I'm not even sure that it was a show. Like, I think this was this an was original movie. movie. It was just there was movie. no, like, he must have thought it was based on a off-Broadway show or something like that. But no, this was an original movie musical. I can see making that assumption, though. I yeah. Can. <laughs> and, but I remember at the time, I thought... Wow, I love Brian De Palma, but I really do not like this film. So I thought, well, I've had some time now, and I know kind of what it is. And so this is my second time watching it. it seems to be the theme: my second time or first time for for some of these. And watching it this time, I I feel like I'm in exactly the same place. And I think the problem is I don't really like any of. Jessica Harper's probably the closest to me liking a performance. But I didn't really like any of the characters. I didn't really like any of the performances. Um, I thought the, the music and everything was very dated. I, I get the kind of the satirical nature of what he's doing. There's a riff on uh, the Beach Boys. And before that, I forget if it was the Beatles or something that they were kind of making fun of a little so bit. So that's 50s doo-wop type. Yeah, 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 it was a little bit more 50s, I guess, uh, and it wasn't really a Beatles as much. Um, but, yeah, I just didn't kind of go along with that. I mean, everything, all the horror stuff works well. It's a He's a talented filmmaker, so of course it's going to, everything's going to look good. It is very 70s, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, during that key scene when they, they, they brought in... Um, Part of it is the fact that, you know, they've they brought in this other guy in his band to sing the music and and they've locked up the the phantom of the they paradise. Walled him in. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, walled him in completely, which they didn't do a very good job of that because it was pretty easy for him to get out. But, yes. Uh and so we know something is gonna happen and it's gonna be bad and it's in a theater and we're seeing the fly gallery and we're seeing above the the stage and everything, and I kept thinking to myself, wow, this reminds me a bit of Carrie. Man, I wish I was watching Carrie as opposed <laughs> to this movie. So, I and, I mean, this was made, I think, before Carrie, yes. so that's not a fair criticism, but it's just the fact that this is not one of my favorite De Palmas. In but, fact, maybe one of my... I haven't watched... Apparently, like, the recent ones are really ooh, bad. Domino is a hard and, sit. Yeah, I heard that. And he even says in his own documentary that you do your best work in your 40s and 50s. Yeah. And beyond that, everything after that's not going to be very good. We know some filmmakers that are the exception to that rule, I think. Eastwood and yeah. Scorsese. But very much I think that's true of De Palma. But for early De Palma, I, I think I can you know get through most anything other than this. I have not to this day watched Bonfire of the Vanities, which I, I right. hear that was the one that... Even and De Palma it, talks shit about that. Yeah, he, well, he does. Well, he talks shit about all of his movies. Tom Hanks talks shit. Yeah, Bonfire the Bear. No, no, that was a a, a world class disaster, yeah. like Heaven's Gate type of disaster. I remember, and it kind of ended that streak because he had The Untouchables and he had Carlitos and, Way and all this stuff. Leading well, it, Carlitos was after that. Was that was him way. recovering from right. and trying to get back into the stuff that had made him successful. Well, I guess but, as, so. I haven't seen maybe. maybe Watching these other ones that I haven't watched, 
I'd be like, okay, I'm longing for Phantom of the Paradise now that I'm watching <laughs> Bonfire of the Vanities. But I I really, really don't like it. And I love 70s movies. You know, I've talked about how much I enjoy the 70s. But this is like, to me, a, a look and a design of the 70s. I, I, I really don't enjoy it. And, and then, really, I, I, I agree with what you're saying there. Um... Well, I, I didn't care for William Finley. I mean, he was just kind of annoying. Like, I was I was excited for him to get beat up and, and whatever, but I I was like, the, the fan... T- the like, I actually scene, liked... Uh, I mean... Paul Williams, I, you almost cheer for him because well, he's sort of... <laughs> well, no, I didn't like him either. And he's like he's such a strange... And that's why he was so popular. He's a strange-looking fellow because he, he looks like he's a 12-year-old boy, but then he's supposed to be like this... Big sex fiend record producer guy. He does a lot guy. of the singing. Sometimes when the Phantom is singing, yeah, he's doing he's doing all of the singing. That's right. And that doesn't work for me. Like yeah. I, I can tell, and it it takes me out of the movie. Yeah, and out uh, of the story too. So. And maybe if they'd hired an actor who could actually sing the part instead of that, that would have maybe come given him a little bit more dimension. Mm-hmm. I do think that he's better at playing crazy than he is at playing sane, but when he goes crazy, our sympathy for him drops significantly. Yeah. And I do think giving Harper the dimension that she was willing to sell out for her fame was interesting, but it also kind of made the one likable person kind of a sellout at that yeah. point. And I, I don't know, there's, there's strange things in that performance too, you know, where she's she'll start singing a song... And then she does some these really strange dance moves, and somehow, like somebody in there is supposed to see, oh, she's super talented and she's going to be a big star. And I don't quite get it. I mean, like, I don't know if it was her voice singing that, but it, it was it sounded okay. But I don't know that. I don't know. But but she does that kind of weird shuffle. <laughs> her arms are going to the side. I I don't know what is going on, unless. Everybody was on drugs, which they might have been. I mean, I, I maybe that would help the experience. I don't know, but I would not be surprised if there was a distinct odor of marijuana on that. Set, I think there <laughs> would have been a fair amount of coke too. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a cocaine type of a movie, but I do see early sort of moments of that De Palma style. He does have the long panning stars. He does yeah. minimal split screening, which he tries again later on. I like the split screen. In Carrie yeah. and Fury and places yeah. like that. Love that. Uh, and, and that does scream 70s. And this style of movie is very much 1973 or whatever. Yeah, 73, 74, whatever. And the farther we get away from that, the more foreign and kind of ridiculous it seems. I just have to believe that this was dead cool when it came out and it <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, it, it probably maybe I'm was. Making, maybe I'm making an excuse for it. Maybe I'm not. Well, it, it, it has a cult following. I mean, it is. There are people that really love this movie. So I also wanted to talk briefly about the gay boys. Yes. There's a character oh, in this. He plays like the the hard rocking dude, mm-hmm. and then as soon as he's off stage, he's got the gay voice, and he talks totally like this, and he's a big prima donna, and it's oh my god, right? And yeah, that's a cliche. It's a tough thing to balance though, because. I think what's supposed to be funny isn't that he's gay. It's the change from his persona. That he's, that he's that, like the persona he image. presents on cha- stage could not be farther away from this. And I have met people who do talk in that voice. It is mm-hmm. not simply the providence of the movie. 
But I do think it's funny that in the 70s, this was probably a big hilarious thing in the movie. Mm. And it's just not going to play today at all. Like, I, and, I, and I'm not going to defend it because it, it was I'm very not, distracting. Like, uh, but I would, I would say that... I'm bringing it up. Part, I'm part of it may be... <laughs> like, I, I really feel like this may be an effective satire and I need to watch it again and really focus on it being a satire of the music industry. And De Palma is making a comment... About how fake. how fake everything, and I think there's a riff on Kiss yeah. in there, and that okay, they're they're like this is their stage image, and behind the it's a completely different person um, there. I don't know why he chose to do that. This is also every De Palma movie has to have a, a Hitchcock uh, homage. There's a shower scene involving that character, and and uh, that that kind of you know. It suffers from the Faustian problem that all Faustian stories is. Yeah. It's the frog and the scorpion, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, why did you sting me, scorpion? Because I'm a scorpion. You yeah. knew that when you met me. Yes. You don't make a deal with the devil. No. He will fuck you over. Like, and again, that is a hang-up with every every version of this mm-hmm. story. Yeah, so uh, we're supposed to cheer for this guy, even though every one of his decisions are wrong. But again, I'm just I'm trying to judge it on the measure of when it came out, where De Palma mm-hmm. was in his career, and again, it's a conditional for what it is. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Yeah. I'm not enthused about it. But honestly, I will take an early, you know, experimental, dog-eared, aged '70s De Palma movie over a redacted or over a, a Domino or some of his more recent work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you have to throw in the towel. If you're not ready to retire, don't retire. But <laughs> if you have nothing more to bring to the table and all you're going to do is tarnish a very strong legacy, maybe think about it. <laughs> maybe think about it. Maybe yeah, think about it. yeah uh, I, would, I would agree. And this, again, I really have to remember, this is before De Palma was De, De Palma. Palma. That's right. This was probably his biggest film. He wanted to make a hit. He wanted to and, make money so he can get his next I mean, project. I, I, again, I'd prefer early De Palma. I'd rather watch Sisters, um, sure. for example, or some of the those really independent movies he did with Robert De Niro. Even uh, The Fury. I'm a Fury apologist. <laughs> I've never watched The Fury, too, but I, yeah. It's ridiculous, yeah, but it's heard. awesomely like, ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, so... So it's not awesomely ridiculous, but I don't, I, I can't just dismiss it. But again, here's the awful truth: if this movie wasn't directed by Brian De Palma, I probably would not have watched it. Fact. Yeah, I probably would have watched it based on my friend's recommendation because I didn't even know it was a De Palma film until I, I watched it. But I was just like, "What is this thing that I've never heard of?" Yeah, it's a movie I've never heard of. I have to see it. But, it's not exactly for me, but I don't but think it's the De Palma up. thing is what brought me back. Okay, maybe this won't be as painful as I remember it being. <laughs> Sadly, it was painful. Alas. Alright, that was another director masterclass. What the fuck? 
review that we've covered six of these. Um, wow. Uh, again, we've done this subject before. The other times, I guess they were bigger movies, but mm-hmm. I think these might be madder movies. <laughs> Which is pretty impressive considering we covered like uh, Inland Empire and Vacuuming Completely New <laughs> Paradise. And Which was a really charming movie. <laughs> yes. Um, so here, how about I offer you this? I'll offer you uh, the ranks of these movies, but can you rank the directors as well? Oh, you're throwing me. <laughs> okay, wait, we don't have to do that right away. We'll give you some time if you want for that. We, yeah, okay, we, yeah, I might have to. Let's rank the movies. That. Okay, rank the movies, and then maybe we might have to do another, a bonus <laughs> segment on this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, sadly, with no joy, no joy at all, because I love Terry Gilliam. Number six was Tideland. Wow, okay. I, I had a miserable time with it, and... The fact that I was so torn between it, it, it was almost a tie with Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera, which is also just so bad, but um, there were some nice costumes, okay sets, uh, I liked when that chandelier crushed those audience members, right. for reasons I don't understand, that same audience member was in the next show... <laughs> Which apparently was a day later, and uh, attractive woman in there to sort of keep me going. Say um, what you will about Asia Argento, she's attractive. She's attractive, so that <laughs> that that kept me going through to the end, even though her performance was absolutely awful. I just wanted Timeland to end, and we were twenty minutes in, mm-hmm. and we had a lot more movie to happen, and I just I, I just feel like it was one wrong choice after another and I mean I you know I felt bad for the actors I really felt bad because I don't think it's their fault I think there's one person to blame and I don't like having to be this mean to a director I admire so uh, okay so uh, we're on to number four Phantom of the Paradise I just have not connected with this movie more than once now I don't know if I'll ever watch it uh, again but who knows could happen it's just very very low De Palma for me, but I've heard there's worse, and I'm I I totally believe people that there's worse. Um, number three and, and three and four was a bit of a wrestling match. I had more fun with Mars Attacks. That's what I'll say. I it was a thumbs up the first time I saw it. Thumbs down this time. Wasted opportunity with some great actors and like a dream cast and Tim Burton doesn't make uninteresting movies, you know, and there's, you know, it's not uninteresting. It's just all over the place, story to story, scene to scene, but it's another movie you could watch on shuffle. There's a smile on my, yeah, (laughs) shuffle and there's a smile on my face when I see all of these people show up, but I am, yeah, especially Danny DeVito, that character, other than like they're, they're friends and they've done movies together. There's I mean, no you, reason for this gambler, degenerate lawyer character to be in there. I guess if you can have Danny DeVito in your movie, sure. But like, give him something. <laughs> like, well, wow. why don't you? Why didn't you make him into the second Nicholson character? Exactly. Like, he could have made something kind of fun and interesting. And him and Annette Bening, the height difference, they, they could have had some fun with that. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I and you made me think about the Annette Bening. I was kind of dismissing that performance, but yeah, that she does, does a good job in there. Number two for me, much probably to your surprise, is Eraserhead, directed by uh, David Lynch. Um, Because Kafka was such a wonderful discovery, 
for me. It's it's a Soderbergh film I hadn't seen, and it, he just he produces so many movies. Yeah. That I feel like I'll be like it's like Stephen King with novels. I'll be going on and on finding after he's gone. I'll still be finding these these Soderbergh films, which are all kind of. They're not all great, but they're they're always something different and something interesting to them. And so, um, and I'll argue that Kafka's great. I don't. I will never understand why it was so dismissed. Yeah, it, I, <laughs> in, I mean, this is how little it's talked about. I didn't even know it had been dismissed as much until you told me that it, it yeah. was. So, um, the fact that I just haven't thought about it, or I remember seeing the poster or the probably the videotape at a video rental store or something at some point. I was like, oh yeah, there's that movie. Wonder, you know, I wonder what that's about. Thank you for, you know, I I, I went in for, uh, you know, Tideland, but it I ended up with Kafka. So right. even even though I'm I've been very negative on this show, that was the real um, joy for me was that one. So that's that's number one over David Lynch, who you know I love. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we don't have the same list, but I, I don't think we're so. gonna we're gonna fight necessarily. And it's interesting, like the director masterclass. It's do we make excuses because we're fans? Like maybe maybe I liked Phantom of the Paradise a little bit more than I should have because I brought in my baggage of being a De Palma fan. And I'm not gonna say that it didn't color things, but just because you're one of my favorite directors doesn't mean that everything you touch is gold. <laughs> But there was no way I was not putting Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera anywhere but dead last. Yes. I was shocked. It seemed to me a vindication of my position on Dario Argento. (laughs) It is. And, And, like, this should be his worst movie. The fact that this isn't his worst movie further vindicates my position on Dario Argento. I'm sorry, you guys. I love horror. I love international cinema. But I just... I can't make excuses for this. Tideland made it to fifth position. Maybe that's an accomplishment. Maybe it's because I'm a fanboy of Terry Gilliam. I have more than any movie he's ever made serious issues with Tideland. But I do have at least respect for his vision and his intention behind the movie. I don't think he was trying to abuse a child. No, no. no. I don't think that in his heart the movie is mean-spirited or as harsh as it actually is. I honestly think he couldn't see the forest for the trees. And all he saw was this beautiful little girl conquering the evil around her. And he somehow missed how unpleasant and awful this movie is at its core. And again, to not even have an ending, even a bad ending, I would take over none. <laughs> like, frustrating. So, no, I wasn't a big fan of that, but that one I wrestled with because yeah, I, I am a fan of Terry Gilliam. It would be like if I hated a Coen Brothers film. On some level, I would think the problem is me. <laughs> but it wouldn't be at the bottom of your list, no. even their worst. Yeah. In fourth position, I'm putting <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise. Mainly for one of the last things I said in the review, which I do believe to be a truth. I probably would not have bothered watching this movie, if not for the fact that it was directed by Brian De Palma. The fact that De Palma was there was what made it interesting to me, but it was almost watching it like a film student or like a, you know, as a, as a point of interest or a point of film history more than as a piece of entertainment. And... Uh, I think in that way, it's showing its age. (laughs) 
But there are people, you are right, who are, are staunch defenders of it. Yes. And because all of the noise belongs to uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the people who love this movie love it a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of people who think it should be number one probably right now, but they're wrong. <laughs> this almost made second place, but I'm going to give Eraserhead third place. Here's why. On a given day, if I'm going to watch either Mars Attacks or Eraserhead... It'll probably be Mars Attacks. It's a very specific meal, is Eraserhead to me. Mm -hmm. In the canon of David Lynch, I do like it, and I do think it's legitimately interesting, but it is a very, very specific meal, right? I think as goofy and on some ways deliberately bad as Mars Attacks is, if you catch it in the right mood on the right day... It could sort of be a delirious goofball guffaw of a movie, which is what it meant to be, that they spent way too much money on it. They made too much of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I guess I think that it succeeded in its goals. It is what it wanted to be, but what it wanted to be was pretty low stakes. <laughs> sort of an accomplishment that it made it as high as it did. But it's almost too good to be a... Bad a bad movie, movie yeah. and too bad to be a good movie or a the, comment the, on those the movies. The effects are too good. The acting is too good. The script is about right, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can agree on that. Too. Kafka is the best movie on this list. Yes. And it is the most unsung movie on this list. It is the hardest to find, maybe with <clears> the exception <throat> of the Phantom of the Opera, the Argento version. Do not go out of your way to find that. Do go out of your way to find Kafka, Criterion, please, please give us a really nice, because even the version I have, it is pretty soft. It almost feels like you're watching a VHS copy of it. Like it started right away. When I when I put the disc in, I was just waiting. Played. Yeah, it just started playing. Yeah. yeah. That's the only way I could get a copy of Kafka, and I wanted that movie on yeah. my wall. Oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so, uh, but if I could get a nice <clears throat> HD version of this, I would bore the shit out of people trying to convince them of its qualities. Um Soderbergh is up, down, and all over the place. I don't love all of his movies, but I love enough of them that he definitely belongs on this list. So, yeah, Kafka's number one. One moment. Uh, do you want to rank this? Yes. Yeah. Do you have yours? All right. We're recording? Yes, we're recording. Uh, so now, let's do another rank. Let's yeah. stretch this bitch out. Yeah. <clears throat> Considering the six directors that we talked about this episode, where would you rank them? As the as a whole, considering the work of theirs that you've seen, I haven't seen all of everybody's work here. But. Yeah, I, I haven't either. But thanks for giving me a second here to just get <laughs> to figure this out. Uh, sixth, I think we'll probably be agreeing on this one is Argento. Thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's I, the important one. I, yeah, I really, I I think I like some of his movies more than you do, but certainly not the one that we reviewed. But yeah, and compared to the other directors, um, Tim Burton is fifth for me. Um, I he has the highs which are like to me Ed Wood and Sweeney Todd uh, but then he has some ones which are kind of up and down and mediocre and I like a lot of his like really famous fun like, well even I'm not sure how fun Batman is but like, I like those original Batman ones Beetlejuice uh, is my childhood I love that movie yeah. I will yeah. never not love that movie yeah so um, I'm, che I'm still cheering for him I, yeah. but yeah it may be kind of like we talked about De Palma's best before date. It might be past that for, for Burden. Uh, Terry Gilliam's number four. And that's probably going to be, you know, higher on your list there. Um, again, I The Fisher King is my favorite of his films. 
and I return to that one time and time again. I don't always return to all of his other movies, and there's a lot that I haven't seen, and some pretty famous ones I still haven't watched yet, so I have to be kind of in the mood for his films. I, it isn't something where I can put it on just any any yeah. old day, even the best of his films. I have to be ready for it. Uh, third is Steven Soderbergh. What a, you know, just a, an amazing range of films that he does, and I just will I'll always find something new to watch, but I do go back to some to, to rewatch, and I get something different every time I watch them, for sure. But we had two, this was a tough one for me, two of the greatest of all time. I think not to say that the others aren't among the greatest of all time. Number two for me is David Lynch. Uh, we may be past De Palma's best before date, but his highs are amazing in movies I've returned to time and time and time and time again. Lynch, I also feel like you have to be in a certain mood for the Lynch films. I'm usually in that mood more often than not. Um, but, yeah, there have been some along the way which are tough to get through. And for some reason, Eraserhead is almost in that category for me, but I still really like it, and I still want to figure it out. Like, that's the case with almost all of them. I want to figure it out. But, yeah, I, I don't know that there's kind of an inland empire in, in, in De Palma's... I think most of his bad movies are accessible in some way, even if they're if they're bad. So, yeah. so yeah, just De Palma is part of that group of the the late sixties, early seventies that really changed cinema. And I think he's a, such an important director of this group of directors. He would have to be number one, even though I put his film at number four. Yeah. Well, I respect that list. We have different lists, but I think we need that going in. Oh, we would. Yeah. We're going to start an agreement with Dario Argento at the bottom. I said it during the review, though. This is not his worst movie. No. The fact that that's not his worst movie, I don't know. I think that's pretty compelling evidence yes. that there's something... Awful. I'm afraid to watch something worse than this, actually. But. Uh, and, you know, sometimes an artist will take a creative risk and fail, and I can respect that. And I think that De Palma has done that. I don't think that the failure of... Phantom of the Opera by Dario Argento was him taking a creative risk. I think it was handled incompetently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm yeah. not a big fan. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I know. I apologize, but in fifth place, I am going to put David Lynch. I know you would. Right down the line, I, could, I fall right in the middle of David Lynch. There are movies that I like more than others. I, I have a lot of respect for The Elephant Man. I really like Wild at Heart. And uh, I, I can't look away from Eraserhead. It hypnotizes me. Most of his other movies, even some like Mulholland Drive and, and Blue Velvet, which are much more celebrated, sooner or later in all of his movies, I find my mind starts to wander. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I, I just lose my almost my ability to focus or my want to focus on the movie. And it's a distinct thing that mm -hmm. David Lynch seems to be able to accomplish with me. And I know that other people don't have this problem. Maybe it's personal to well, me. Well, Siskel and Ebert agreed with you. I think, especially yeah, yeah. Roger Ebert, was nothing but one-star reviews until Mulholland Drive. Like right. he, yeah, he was right with you. So again, um, here's the thing, though. Whenever I sit down to watch a David Lynch movie, even round two or three, I, I, I got a hand my hands on Firewalk with me. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to rewatch it at some point. I'm looking forward to rewatching it, but I have deep problems with that movie. <laughs> but. There's something Lynch, but mm -hmm. he's there's something about him. I yeah. get it, but it's going to be fifth place for me. Um, this is really tough. 
I don't even know I'll do a last minute switch. I'm going to say Tim Burton next. Um, I, I, I'd almost flopped it with, with uh, De Palma, but I think that the peaks are higher with De Palma for me than yes. they are for Burton. But there are movies in Tim Burton's collection that are almost sacred to me. And I think it's that. It's just like, because I want him to be that filmmaker that we all believed he was at one time, I part of me still gets a little bit excited about that next Tim Burton <laughs> movie. <laughs> A lot of the times I'm disappointed, though. Um, but hopefully, and it would be such a lovely thing, if we got some purely wholly original, great Tim Burton movie before he retired, Yeah, that would be great for me. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great for me. Uh, so then next, yeah, De Palma. Uh, and as a technical filmmaker, he is the best filmmaker on this list. As far as like him designing sequences, yes. uh, the one-shots that he loves so much... The technical filmmaker. I believe that he says yes to projects, not because he thinks the scripts are amazing, but because he sees a sequence in that script that he knows he can make amazing. That's where you get movies like Snake Eyes and stuff like that, right? Uh, But even that, because De Palma did it, it's worth at least a one-time watch, right? So I'm always curious about De Palma, though it has been getting pretty dark (laughs) in the later stage of his career. Mm -hmm. I love Terry Gilliam because of the distinctness of his work. Nobody else would make the... If someone else directed the screenplay of The Fisher King, it would look and feel completely different than The Fisher King that he delivered us. I was not a fan of Tideland, but even though I was not a fan, it is a Terry Gilliam movie. It is a film that only he would make. And maybe that, in this case, was to the negative. But... I respect the distinctness of vision and the madness that he brings to his movies and the joy and the creativity and the fact that they tend to be lower budget or even when they're big budget, every inch of every frame is considered like the Coen brothers do it. Like the bigness, the size of his movies, the madness of his movies, the strangeness of the voice, the individuality of Terry Gilliam. They don't always work, but they're always somehow an event in my mind. So, uh, I lots of respect. To my own surprise, (laughs) I'm going to put Steven Soderbergh at the top of this list. Part of it is because he came into the film industry in Rose right about the time I was fully falling in love with cinema. And his rise and me starting to collect movies and bore the shit out of all my friends about movies. (laughs) and And... the sheer volume of work since that day that I watched Kafka in the theater. No, I haven't loved every single movie he's done. Some of the experiments are, well, like all experiments, some experiments are successful and some fail. But they're usually interesting failures at that. Yes. And for some of these peaks and that run he had, Jesus, out of sight, the limey, traffic, Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> just... <laughs> and in between there, there's some really interesting, bizarre art house fair like Schizopolis I think King of the Hill is an unsung 90s masterpiece but again You're not I, alone. I am no. biased because uh, I'm a, already a fan of, of Soderbergh and there was that little thing he had that big peak with Sex Lies and Videotape and then it wasn't until uh, I think maybe was out of sight out of sight started to get his people were talking of, yeah yeah he it is led up touch. to traffic like, yeah underneath went nowhere kafka went nowhere schizopolis went nowhere he did a, a one-man show of uh, spalding gray uh gray's oh, yeah. yep. gray's anatomy uh not obviously. yeah yeah I know. <laughs> uh 
every movie he does is different. They're all interesting. He made a horror movie on an iPhone. Yes, uns- <laughs> unsane. Unsane, yeah, yeah. And it's watchable. It's a, it's an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just I have such respect for that dude. He's willing to experiment. The sheer volume of work. And the fact that his second movie was Kafka. Damn it, I'm just... And, I'm and he's board. a great technical filmmaker like De Palma. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, but that's tough. Like, that was a tougher list to make than from the... <laughs> than, the than this, this list. Was, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I think we probably run this episode into the ground. We now. have. So if there's anybody, thank you so much. If there's anybody still listening, thank you for putting up for that nerdgasm that you just heard. <laughs> 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 You and the voices tonight. <laughs> what was the what? What's your favorite of these movies? Uh, are these director masterclass? Am I full of shit? Rank and review at gmail.com. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Oh, listen to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. By the way, please do. Thank you. It's worthy of your ears. <laughs>
oh, there's something about that movie I love. I love the writing of it. Uh, Costner and, and Sarandon together. Uh, Robbins, that character's always annoyed me, but he's supposed to annoy me. And I kind of recognized that he was doing quite a good, giving a good performance in there. And it, again, you're not, you don't know the baseball history that I have. The baseball was first and then movies were after that. Right. So it was kind of a mix of the two at a very important time. And it's one I, I that left my movie collection. It's one I kind of miss <laughs> not having. Um, but number one, uh, The Contender. I think it's just a solid um, political thriller that not a lot of people talk about anymore or really remember. And it was a big release that year and really kind of started to make Joan Allen's career. That and her performance in Nixon. And, Again, I, yeah. I love going to consignment stores in like Value Village and looking for cheap movies. Yes. And it seems like one that I should have bumped into and snared by now. It just vanished. It, it did. It's very strange because mm-hmm. it's solid. I would agree with that as number one. I think I would probably go maybe Place Beyond the Pines number two just because it surprised me so yep. much and it kind of lingered. I wrestled with it longer. Yep. Um, you played good defense for it in the review, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, again, I, I, not my typical movie, so I was I didn't know what I was getting into, so it sort of surprised me. So I'm getting lost in the muck here. Um, Towards going to the bottom of the list, I think... I'm not putting Bull Durham at the bottom. I think I'd probably go fan, the Baker Boys and then Bull Durham. Okay. Then... Um, Would Audrey Rose be four? Uh, that's the fourth. Audrey Rose and... Uh, and Fast Times and Fast three. Times are the two that I'm resting. I'll put Fast Times in third and Audrey in fourth. And this okay. is off the top of my head, yep. based off of my memory. And I thank you for letting me do that episode because it, it, it meant that I could get another episode out mm-hmm. fairly quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we'd agree in three of the six spots, so yeah. that's actually um, pretty good for us. And as hard as I was on Bull Durham at the time, <laughs> I don't think I would give necessarily a negative review to any of those movies. Uh, Bull Durham and Pebus Baker Boys are just farther away from my comfort zones. And if I'm sitting down to pick a movie to watch, those are way lower on the list for me. (laughs) My my number six there, Place Beyond the Pines, um, it it would be very, very high on the list of movies we're going to be talking about now. So, yeah, yeah, I I love, yeah, all, all six of those movies. 